laughing. All right, now listen. Just listen. Shut up. Right? Either sit down or stand up or lay down or do something. But shut up. Right? This is a rock and roll concert. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We also ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or you can head right to nationalreview.com, click on podcasts, find all the fine NR podcasts that are available, including Political Beats. Listen, enjoy, please share, and leave reviews, too, so others can find the program my name is scott bertram you can find me on twitter at scott bertram my tag team partner standing by as always still healthy jeff blair jeff how are you doing it's a bloody disaster over here let me tell you okay all of my painstakingly arranged tape loops have gotten completely out of whack nobody can play in time and i guess i'm just gonna have to drag my sound man across the mixing board (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, hopefully things get better. At Esoteric, Poor Bobby Pritton. At Esoteric CD is Jeff on Twitter. And as you know, by clicking on this file, this is a part two of our discussion of The Who. And thankfully, our guest from part one has agreed to return for part two. I he don't is, know how we managed uh, to convince him. Well, we increased the fee. Uh, <laughs> he is publisher for The Federalist. Uh, also writes the Transom Daily Subscription Newsletter. You can follow him on Twitter, too, at B. Domenich. He's Ben Domenich, back for more punishment. Ben, thanks for returning. Yes, it's great to be back with you. I, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the uh, the first part of this. And uh, I, I had a note of complaint from uh, my brother who listened to it. He said, you didn't talk about Eminence Front. And I said, we only did the first half. <laughs> so. Yeah, people were saying, like, like well, why aren't they talking about who are you? I'm like, dude. And then somebody actually chimed in to say, like, you, you don't understand, Jeff. Jeff would, like, literally physically explode <laughs> if we took these things out of chronological order. And it's true. It's true. So we don't. Uh, and in case you weren't with us in part one, we'll first go back and listen to part one. But we did cover uh, the Who catalog from the beginning all the way up through live at Leeds and including uh, The Seeker, the uh, the uh, non-album single, which means we uh, we re-enter our broadcast, well, somewhere around, what, 1970 or so. And Jeff can take us from there. Well, I mean, The Seeker kind of was a harbinger of things to come. I mean... Uh, the success of Tommy, the worldwide global success of Tommy. You've got, you know, this this rock opera that comes off really. You know, Townsend would sometimes say later on in his his life that, like, you know, oh, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't really, you know, fulfill my dreams or my visions with this. Um, but you know, let's be honest, it made them famous. It made them worldwide mega stars. It saved the the career of the band. It made, it made them money, which was yeah. the big thing. They were bleeding money until they made Tommy and then touring it all around the world for years basically brought them back out of the red and into the black. And, of course, what is Pete Townsend going to do for a follow-up? Well, this is, of course, the question that's haunted The Who's career throughout every one of their albums. What do you do to follow this up? And so what was his idea? Well, he was fascinated by the sort of ferment of youth culture 
and his personal skepticism of about you know of a lot of the sort of peace, love, and happiness, you know, stuff that was being floated around by '60s hippies. Uh, you know, he always has had a sort of jaded perspective about these things. He looks at them with a gimlet eye. Something I really do appreciate about Townsend as a songwriter. Uh, so his idea was instead to come up with a, a new operatic rock operatic concept that would be a dystopia, a future dystopia. Uh, about you know life in a world where you know the authoritarian government runs things, thinks something kind of quasi Orwellian or maybe THX one one three eight more like is probably a better way of thinking about it. Um, and uh, he he wanted to come up with this idea that would then integrate other. Like, Pete Townsend's reach almost always exceeded his grasp. Mm. So, like, he couldn't just stop there. He wanted it to also include, you know, sort of the, the mysticism that he had become a big part of. He, he had become a disciple of this Indian mystic named Meher Baba, um, who uh, was, you know, preaching about, you know, God and about oneness with man and about how, you know, music is a note that will unite you with, uh, you know, the eternal spirit and, you these are very deep, weird 60s, 70s, early 70s uh, mystical, you know, things that, again, could only have come from that time and that era. But Pete Townsend was deeply committed. To, in fact, he still is to this day. Give him credit for it. It wasn't a passing fancy for him. Um, but, you know, so, okay, dystopia, um, you know, anti-authoritarianism, uh, deep mysticism, youth rebellion. <clears throat> what did he want to do? He came up with this thing called Lifehouse. That was going to be his idea. And it wasn't just going to be an album, a rock opera album. <laughs> it was also going to be a movie. It was going to be a stage play. It was going to be a live show where the band would bond with the audience and they would all become one. And then, I don't know, presumably they'd all like, you know, vaporize into the ether at the end of the show <laughs> and, you know, join the, the eternal slipstream. You know, this is all sorts of weird kind of mystical and sci-fi nonsense. And, you know, as you can gather from my description of this is that, you know, when all of your ideas are sort of like woolly and like loosely gathered like that, you're, you're basically screwed. You're not going to be able to come up with a conceit that's going to, you know, sustain you for a project. This song is over. I'm left with only tears. I must remember. Even if it takes a million years The song is over The song is over Such a long You're an easy Play it so free Like a breath Rippling by This is, of course, the disaster. This is the way Pete Townsend thinks about it. The disaster that was Lifehouse. Uh, and these songs, he wrote a lot of really interesting songs. I think the first song that came out for this project was something called Naked Eye. 
which they were playing as early as 1969, some of the chords, and then they started playing live as an actual song in early 1970. Uh, Naked Eye is a song that would only never made it onto Who's Next, um, but it was uh, finally released on Odds and Sods, their outtakes album later on in the mid-70s. And that's the moment where sort of Townsend really crystallized his idea of what he wanted to be doing with this music. You sign your own name, and I sign mine. They're both the same, but we still get separate rooms. You can cover up your guts, but when you cover up your nuts, you're admitting that there must be something wrong. Press any button, and milk and honey flow. those great lines where you, know, you, you, you take a little dope you walk out in the air the stars are all connected to the brain uh you know what's the line you know it all seems fine to the naked eye but it don't really happen that way at all basically saying like you know you're living in this aldous huxley like illusion of pleasure um you know hedonism uh but in reality there are people upstairs who are running the show and they're keeping you in some sort of you know quasi slavery kind of you're kind of prefiguring the matrix in a way if you think (laughs) about it um and it's a beautiful song it's the first hint of what would eventually become who's next and that's the album that we start with. Who's next? Uh, everybody knows it because you can turn on classic rock radio. And, uh, you know, if you keep your channel tuned to that station for 24 hours, uh, you're going to hear every single song. <laughs> <laughs> you're literally going to hear every single freaking song. I mean, maybe they don't play Love Ain't For Keeping, I guess. But uh, you're going to hear Baba O'Reilly. You're going to hear My Wife. You're going to hear Won't Get Fooled Again, Behind Blue Eyes, Song Is Over, Getting In Tune, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he considered this a failure. Everyone else on the planet considers it basically to be the Who's Greatest Album of All Time. What do you guys think about Who's Next? <laughs> well, can I just say before you before we get away from Lifehouse, um, the the one thing that I thought was so interesting about it uh, as a project is it, it's really it, it's ahead of its time, and I wonder if someone tried to you know uh, deliver on the promise that Lifehouse had today if they would be able to achieve something a little more uh you know maybe not fully you know uh, completing the town's envision mm-hmm. but maybe grasping a, a hold of a little bit of aspects of it um there's townsend uh, himself tried to do that he he returned yes. to this over and over again he yes. did it in the late 70s he did it in the 90s he put out this whole big boxed set you know of course i'm the mm-hmm. kind of guy who obsessively collects pete townsend demos that's how much i'm a fan <laughs> of the who uh you know this is big box set called the lifehouse chronicles like mm-hmm. you know and they even made like a radio play for the yes, BBC. A radio play. and you know now nah, i it didn't work in my opinion <laughs> well but 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 basically what he's talking about is like achieving a kind of musical singularity right in which all of the different aspects of every concert goer would be fed into a computer and that will come out with an amazing note 
that will elevate everyone to nirvana which to me sounds kind of like the bs that you would hear from a silicon valley guru or a character on black mirror you know it's it's uh it's 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 interesting it's crazy but it's also kind of like it's a particular brand of of aspirational lunacy that I kind of admire. Um, and the fact that nobody else in the band really could understand what he was talking about had to just be the most frustrating thing for him. <laughs> I mean, he, <laughs> writes, he writes in his liner notes, if, you, if you've got the reissue from the 90s of Who's Next, he actually talks just about this. He's like trying to explain it to their manager, Kit Lambert. And like, you know, he's just talking to, to Lambert and Lambert is nodding his head. He doesn't really quite get it though. And then Townsend feels despair. And he's literally just like, says like, there was a moment where I was just like walking towards the open window and I was going to hurl myself out the window. Uh, and if I hadn't been saved, if somebody hadn't run up and caught me, you know, that, that'd that be the end of the who. I'd have died because like he was so frustrated by the fact that people couldn't understand what he was on about. But I get why they aren't. They don't quite understand. The, the thing you were talking about there, Ben, uh, that's perfectly encapsulated in, again, one of the most famous outtakes from Who's yes. Next, which is pure and easy. There once was a note, pure and easy, playing so free, like a note, you know, like listening by and then, then there's that 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 great line from it you know distortion becomes somehow pure in its wildness the note that began all can also destroy and it, I, I god help me um it just makes me think of that great south park episode where cartman is obsessed with the brown note you know <laughs> yes. what that is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the brown note the brown note which is like apparently there's like some frequency you can play that's low that will make people spontaneously like you know soil their pants <laughs> so i'm thinking that that's the note that's the note that's a turtle everybody's just in the audience imagine an entire audience full of people at a who concert spontaneously crapping themselves <laughs> i know that's that's so irreverent and it, it doesn't do justice to uh, what, what is in fact a very beautiful song but yeah this is probably why the conceits that Townsend was trying to work into Who's Next were probably doomed to fail Gas on a hillside Oil in a teacup Watch all the cars of life Lose joy Distortion becomes somehow pure in its wildness The note that began all So they go from uh, Kit Lambert, who you mentioned, uh, uh, to uh, Glenn Johns uh, on Who's Next. And there's I don't actually know the full backstory there. I know there were money issues. Uh, they, they thought that uh, there was uh, issues there related to him being dishonest. There was tension there, I think, between him and Daltrey. Um, but what is what's the Kit Lambert story? Because he kind of goes out after uh, the Lifehouse failure. I mean, I think generally it was a question of Lambert kind of becoming addicted to drugs. Drugs, of course, a huge problem. Townsend himself was clean at this time, which is mm -hmm. kind of bizarre to realize because later on in the 70s, he 
fell back into horrible drug and drinking problems. But he was just basically a boozer at this point. Lambert, however, was addicted to heroin, and he was like expensing the Who's accounts to support his habit, and he was living high on the hog. And they were also the, – the, the, you have the early versions of these sessions that they recorded with Lambert in, I believe, New York City. And you know they didn't sound right. They weren't working. And the funny thing is all that stuff's now been subsequently released on these various reissues of Who's Next that you can find. And they don't sound good. The Pure and Easy is a good one. They do mm-hmm. a, a nice run-through of uh, Baby Don't You Do It. But that's just a blues song. They're obviously blowing off steam. But you listen to that those early versions of like Won't Get Fooled Again, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. I can only imagine what a horror it would be if that was the version that was known to the world instead of the one that we have. Mm-hmm. So uh, clearly Lambert wasn't getting the job done. He was probably becoming sort of semi-functional. This is a thing that happens. You know, that look at what happened to Jimmy Miller with the Rome stones right. you know drugs will just you know no matter what your talents are your skills are they're going to take you out of it so they hire glenn johns uh, re- recording artist recording engineer and producer to the stars worked with the beatles worked with the stones worked with the who worked with a hundred other great hard rock he did the uh, uh led zeppelin debut yes yes yeah, he's he's an amazing producer. He's an amazing engineer, and what he gets out of this band sonically is unprecedented. Uh, and it does sound it does sound like it's one of those weird kind of caterpillar chrysalis butterfly <laughs> metamorphoses. The band that you last heard in the studio on Tommy, which was a good band, you know, this is the Who as you knew them in the '60s, now sounds like they're adults. This is totally different. I mean, one of the major reasons for that, of course, is the addition and use of the synthesizer. But it's more than that. Townsend's guitars just are snapping. The bass, Entwistle's bass, is just pushed up in the mix. And then Keith Moon, his drumming just comes alive sonically. It's mic'd in a way that Kit Lambert probably never had the expertise to understand how to do. It's mic'd in stereo. You hear every single tom hit, every single cymbal splash. This is uh, an album for people who are fans of hard rock drumming that you worship at the shrine of Keith Moon. And one of the reasons is you listen to him on Who's Next. is uh i don't know if this makes any sense but this album i never immediately place it in the year it was released my brain makes me want to think this was released like in the mid to late 70s as opposed to 1971 because the sound that they achieve is almost not of the time i mean it it, it is 
so incredible what they get on record. And uh, Glenn Johns is a big part of that. He, the, Townsend wanted him to produce Lifehouse, in fact, and uh, and gave him the demos. And, and Glenn Johns liked the songs, and he sat the band down and uh, essentially said, um, songs are great. I have no idea what your I have no idea what Lifehouse <laughs> is at all. And everyone else in the room said the same thing. You know, Daltrey and, and Whistle and Moon said, yeah, we're, we're with you. We don't know what this is. And so that's how he began to get into the, the Who's uh, orbit. And they bring him in to produce Who's Next, which is just, I mean, we talked about the Cars first album being the Cars Greatest Hits. Um, I mean, you could, I suppose, call this the Who's Greatest Hits because every single song is a hit. Every single song you know. Every single song, as Jeff said, is still played on classic rock radio today. Now, of course, the Who had other great songs from other great albums, both before and after. But you're not going to go wrong with any single song on Who's Next. There, there is no weakness anywhere. Uh, what Johns does to that rhythm section is is incredible because as much as they are um, powerful and and just a, a blunt instrument and whistle and moon, he 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 makes them sharper. Um, the story goes that he also he actually made Moon's drum kit smaller so he'd play a little more, <laughs> a little a little more a little tighter. Um, but he still sounds amazing, amazing on, on this record. Um, I mean, I don't know where you want to go to start. Bargain- I'll tell, I, actually, I'll tell you where I would like to go. I want to actually talk about the growth of Keith Moon as a drummer. People always talk about how he sort of like, you know, came out of the mists like, you know, Tarzan. He was just, you know, this, this, <laughs> this noble savage, this wild man. And he was basically the same from the day he started till the day he died. And I don't believe that that's true, actually. I think he actually learned a few tricks. And I talked in our last episode how I really think that I can see from Miles, maybe his, maybe that's his singular greatest performance. But there's a song on this record, a song that I just absolutely treasure called Bargain. And, the, you know, this is one of these things that's funny because, like, you know, we, we joked about this on the last episode. You see these songs not only in TV shows, but they're selling cars. They're in commercials. You know, David Caruso puts his sunglasses on and you hear, yeah, you know, and then you think of Bargain. And you think of Nissan selling hatchbacks. Um, but Bargain is a beautiful song, a song that Pete Townsend wrote not about like love, which is the way you might think about it, uh, but really about a search for God, his quest for God. You know, I, I sit looking around, I look at my face in the mirror, I know that I'm worth nothing without you. One and one don't make two, one and one make one. I'm looking for that free ride to me. It's such a beautiful song, and it does have that synth background, which is, of course, the new element that's infused into the Who. But what really carries that track, what really makes it absolutely indelible, is Keith Moon's drumming. That is something that he learned. I don't know if it was Glenn Johns beating it into his head or if it was something that he actually picked up. But if you listen to the drum track on Bargain, you could yes. strip away all the other instruments and just listen to the way he plays. Well, in the second half especially, that bass drum, that kick drum is relentless. <sighs> it will not stop. It's incredible. There's the part where everything drops out at the second half, and it just goes back to the do 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 thing, and then all of a sudden his drums come in. I've played that fill in my head. I've played it on walls. I've played it on doors. I played it on my thighs. I played it on computers. I've played it on my baby's head. That's how much I love what Keith Moon does on Bark.
I think that one of the things that uh, well, I, I, we have to mention the cover, right? <laughs> Do you, I don't know that you know. The, the, total total talk, piss take on two thousand and one, basically. Yes, exactly. Uh, do you know anything about the background of why they decided to do that? I mean, we know a it was bit literally about- a joke. Okay, I do yeah. know. I, they were. Okay. I think they were driving by. That's like a, one of those like anchoring slabs, like you know, in coal country in England. Uh, you know, they have you. You can have landslides if things aren't properly anchored, and you don't want like the coal to go sliding off and like you know cause death. This is a thing that actually happened a couple of times in like the fifties and sixties in England. So you have these giant concrete slabs that are basically stuck into the ground to anchor them. They were driving by on the road. They saw that, and by pure chance, I think they happened to have their photographer with them, Ethan. Uh, I can't remember his name. Um, and they said, "Hey, you know, like this looks like 2001. You can see alternate outtakes where they're all like running up to it and touching it, like the monkeys at the beginning of 2001." <laughs> uh, but then they decided it would be funnier if you know. It, just to make it as a, like a parody of 2001 and so you know you see them all walking away from it after they've pissed on it and you know, like there's that that little thing you can see keith moon's like zipping up his pants you know and, and you have the, the big water splotches on it which wasn't by the way they didn't actually urinate on it they dumped the buckets of water on it um <laughs> oh but, no like, yeah, oh, you've yeah, i know i know I've, I've ruined it i've ruined it you know this is you know I've i've i've, I've revealed the, the magic you know i've revealed the trick behind the magic but yeah that's what it is. It's a total parody of that, and it was completely spontaneous. And you know, it beats the other potential album cover, which was going to be Keith Moon wearing S and M drag with a whip. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, this is a thing. The, the, the picture is there. In fact, they use it as the cover for "Won't Get Fooled Again" as a single yes. release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we would have like really talked about that being one of the great album covers of all time <laughs> if it had gone with that. So, what do we think of Bob O'Reilly? Dice. It's a song that when you hear it, it opens this album and you just think, what happened to this band? changed last thing you heard from them you know okay live at leeds that's its own thing that's their stage act but the last thing you heard from them was like you know see me feel me listening to you yeah. well, we're not going to take it from tommy and then all of a sudden he comes in with these synthesizers and apparently how he did this is that he fed into his arp you know like you know, like data from mayor baba like he's like you know you know height weight age stuff like that life <laughs> statistics you know um and i have the nine and a half minute version his original demo version which is still pretty cool and what you realize by the way is that the piano and the synth were just imported straight from the demo it's only the bass guitar and drums that are done new um and uh 
it feels like a completely different era for this band. Um, for good and I can also maybe see that it for could Ill. be for bad, for yeah. ill, because this is the moment where the Who and particularly Townsend fall in love with these synth loops, these mm-hmm. tape loops, which yeah. is kind of what I joked about at the opening of the show. Um, and that has a tendency to both harness Keith Moon down and sort of destroy that kind of live spontaneity. Uh, but, you know, once you have to p- start playing to tape loops, you have to start playing to click tracks. Right. You have to start keeping yourself in 4-4 in four, four time or whatever time you're playing in, and then things become a lot more difficult, especially if you're not like a technical, uh, you know, technically uh, – perfect drummer keith moon you know the joke is always he plays sloppy drums wow they are sloppy but they're incredibly expressive in their sloppiness um he does a great job on this song and i also think that the lyric is just one of the most powerful lyrics he wrote it about woodstock he hated woodstock the who played woodstock they killed it they're the most famous performer they're arguably even more famous than hendrix's set at woodstock and townsend to this day says like yeah i hated that kid (laughs) they they, they dosed them with lsd you know he's looking out on these oceans of like mud covered you know hippie kids and what his what what comes out of that what comes out of that is him saying you know it's only teenage wasteland Teenage Wasteland lyric kind of doesn't. I don't think it's actually a good thing. Um, I think that it just as a lyric, it's fine. I just think that that kind of overwhelms what is a much more interesting song than just that. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the sense that if you talk to you know most people who are just listening to this on local classic rock station or what have you, uh, that's the way they think of the song. And I think it unfortunately makes them ignore other aspects of it. I can't remember which friend of mine. It was either uh, uh, Carl or it was either uh, him or, or Jeremy Sendero. It's made it, the comparison to the way that uh, how uh, Dylan's Rainy Day Women, uh, everybody just remembers, remembers sure. everybody must get stoned. And and it's actually like, <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's better than that. There's actually <laughs> a really interesting song there. It's not just Teenage Wasteland. Um, but I do think it's 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 interesting how much that has been enduring anthem and i do remember it uh in particular uh as being uh something that that came back and that the who played again at the uh post 9 11 uh concert for new york city right uh in in a very very good uh performance uh on their part uh and and it's obviously one that has been you know very enduring 
the uh, the if you're like me during during the pre Google days when mm-hmm. when you didn't have the ability to instantly like you know look up a lyric and find out well that's the song. I could not figure out what what whose song is. I know that's Roger Daltrey singing, for God's sakes. <laughs> and I just thought it was called Teenage Wasteland, and I could never figure out where is this? Why can't I find it on any of these albums? And it took me a long time to figure out it was called Baba O'Reilly. For those who don't know, the name comes from it's Mayor Baba, his you know spiritual guru, Pete Townsend's spiritual guru, uh, in the style of Terry Riley, who was basically the only other person who was working with these sort of synth loops at the time and, and Townsend was listening to him because he was always trying to keep up on like, you know, progressive music. And uh, that's the reason that song has its name, which otherwise probably sounds completely random to people. Sorry to interrupt you though. Ben. No, 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 that's, uh, it's good. I, I wonder before we get to, to won't get fooled again, uh, the first time that you heard this album, uh, I'm curious, did you clearly the, the people, in terms of speaking about the Who, consider this the most popular. It's the most enduring, at least in in terms of any of their albums. Like the 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 popularity of it is ubiquitous. Um, you know, everybody knows the songs from it, uh, and and yet they didn't seem to be all that happy with it. They they disagreed with that. Uh, when you heard it for the first time, did you think that about it? Presumably before you'd heard Quadrophenia. Scott, you want to go first because I do have an opinion on this. Well, I, I I'm one hundred and one hundred percent certain I, I heard all the songs on the album before I heard the album itself. If I mean because again of its ubiquitous uh, ubiquity on on radio. So the first time I heard it as a unit, um, I was still blown away. Really, I mean hearing hearing everything back to back, sequenced in the way it is, Bob O'Reilly at the start of the album. One of the great all-time album closers, of course, and won't get fooled again. Uh, the way uh, the, the the momentum that carries through the album, uh, that even that middle section, which again is probably the least known, even though it's still well known from "Loving for Keeping" uh, through this, the song is over, which is a great, great song. And then you get to uh, you know getting in tune, which is this delicate ballad at first, Nicky Hopkins piano and those those you know bubbling bass runs from. Ant whistle at the start, just a brilliant arrangement with the hey, dynamics. Everything that people sometimes like, like, like more ignorant people just think of it as the Jerry Maguire song. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> you know, like where, where, where Tom Cruise is writing the memo that will yeah. sabotage his career. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh man. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've totally forgot that. But hey, I, then, then again, you still haven't seen Almost Famous. <laughs> yeah. See, okay. So just so people know that we were joking uh, in our pre-show notes about the fact that uh, you know I, it's very clear that I haven't seen Almost Famous. I'm singing this note cause it fits in well with the way I'm feeling There's a symphony that I hear in your heart sets my head reeling But I'm in tune, right in tune I'm in tune, and I'm gonna tune Uh, just like I haven't seen uh, High Fidelity because I, I, I intensely reject 
uh, movies that people push on me when they say like, oh, you got to watch this, man. It's just totally about your life. You will so totally identify with this. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just like, no, 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 no. Because nobody wants to encounter their doppelganger on screen. It's a horrible thing. You know, you, you end up nitpicking it and then feeling kind of, you know, shrunk by the fact that there's somebody else out there who is like you. So, nope, I haven't seen Almost Famous. I mean, I know I've seen clips. I mean, who hasn't, man? I've seen a ton of them. Uh, but, nope, haven't seen the film. Cameron Crowe, huge Hugh fan. I mean, because he was around back in that time. So, obviously, he would be. I'm going to just say this, by the way. I... <clears throat> I'm tired of who's next. Mm. I know it's a very controversial. Ooh. thing. You know the thing. The thing is, <laughs> I Jeff, there are albums Jeff like Jake that coming off the top rope. There are Boo albums. This man, boo this man. <laughs> there are albums. I, I was going to make this point, so I'll just make it now and, and then let you go. Yeah. But there are albums I absolutely feel that way about. Led Zeppelin Four. I don't ever really need to hear again. I just don't. But I don't feel. I mean, I, I've heard who's next almost certainly as much as I've heard Led Zeppelin Four. And I don't feel that same sense of, of burnout. Most of these songs, if not all these songs, still carry a, uh, a sense of freshness to them. And I still like b- listening to Bargain 12 times in preparation for the show. Each of those 12 times, I, I dug it. I was into it. It's a great, great song. And I, so and I, you, I don't feel that same burnout with Who's Next that I do with perhaps other classic albums. But and I, you know what? Listen, I agree with you about Bargain. I agree with you about Won't Get Fooled Again, which I guess we'll discuss in a second. I agree with you about Bob O'Reilly. I mean, going mobile. I love going mobile. I always have. I always, in fact, I was joking about this earlier today or, or last night that, like, you know, if you if you if you look at the lyrics to some of these songs, it kind of scans as a weird libertarian pro, proto libertarian <laughs> manifesto, mm-hmm. because there's that great line in in Going Mobile where he's like, "I don't care about pollution. I'm an air conditioned gypsy. Uh, watch the police and the tax man miss me. I'm mobile. Yahoo!" I'm just like, "Wow, he's uh, really kind of like sticking it to the man here." problem i have always had with who's next and in fact i had this one even when i was younger is that it sags a little bit underneath the weight of its pretensions it, it does sort of um it, it very clearly reflects its odds and ends status that this is an album that came from a concept that didn't quite come to fruition so we just put the best songs on this and then you have like you tunes like the song is over which is beautiful in its own way but it's also ponderous getting in tune is a bit ponderous loving for keeping isn't you know a great song it's just sort of like light relief uh and then there's a song like my wife which i really like john entwistle's one song on the album i like my wife everyone likes it it's funny it's hilarious you know you know my life's in jeopardy murder and cold blood's coming after me it's like his wife is gonna murder him because he didn't come home last night and he she thinks he's been sleeping with another woman (laughs) uh it's funny stuff you know gonna buy a 
tank in an airplane when she catches up with me it's gonna be insane oh that's gonna be that's a wonderful lyric but it came into this album from nowhere uh he wrote a song that was actually supposed to be part of the lifehouse conceit called when i was a boy ended up as the b-side of a let's see action a, a non-album single coming later uh that is much better i think for like who's next or what who's next was trying to be thematically than that So I, I think you're right. There's this is part of the fact that like all these songs are like big, portentous, anthemic statements um, that that kind of drags on me. And I guess there's no greater example of that than a song that everyone else on the planet loves, and I don't, and which is Behind Blue Eyes. I've never yeah. liked it. Yeah. I've never really liked that song. Yeah, yeah, I think you're wrong. <laughs> well, then, okay, that's what you're here for, Ben. Uh, explain to me my wrongness. Well, well I just. I, I think it's an interesting. Um, I think it's a very interesting song. I think it is particularly interesting uh, given the context of of attempting to make a villain sympathetic. Um, one of the to step back for a second. One of the modern fans of of the Who in terms of uh, usage is uh, is uh, Noah Hawley, who you may be familiar with as uh, one of TV's most successful show creators, showrunners, directors. Um, he uh, brought back uh, Fargo to uh, TV, uh, which obviously was been a, an award winning uh, production with you know top notch acting talent, uh, and uh, he created Legion. Uh, for uh, them, in which he used, uh, he actually covered himself a number of Who songs. The the whole series begins and ends with a Who song, and has uh, an episode in which the lead is is singing behind blue eyes. And one of the aspects of it that's uh, so uh, excellent is that basically it's it, it has a um, a sympathy for the devil kind of undercurrent to it. Where once you start paying attention to the lyrics, you realize that it's uh, kind of the bad guy making the case for himself, which it was obviously uh, in context at the time um, uh, for you know how it was supposed to be used originally. Uh, you don't get that context in the in Who's Next because it's just as you said, as an album, it's just kind of thrown together. It doesn't have the coherence of uh, their other work. Um, and and lacking the structure of the Lifehouse story, what structure there was. But I think as a song, uh, that makes it particularly interesting because you don't get a lot of those. Um, that's uh, it's as a, as a story, it's uh, it makes for a more challenging uh, lyrical thing. 
And while it's not in my top tier, I wouldn't even put it in my top 10 of Who songs. I just don't think it's a bad song. I don't think that it's there's something to dislike. No one knows what it's like to feel these feelings like I do. And I blame you. No one bats back as hard on their anger None of my pain and woe can show through But my dreams, they aren't as empty As my conscience seems to be It's never free mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's a bad song. It's just like, again, it's treated as a universal classic, um, both among you know the normies and among serious <laughs> Who fans. And I just mm-hmm. don't, I've never felt that way. I don't know. I don't know, Scott, if you have any thoughts on my horrible dumping on this album. No, I'm actually close, behind Blue Eyes is my least favorite song on the album. So I'm I'm more Team Jeff than Team Ben on that. Okay. I, I kind of feel, I, I'm sure this is not accurate whatsoever, but kind of feel like I either want to like Behind Blue Eyes or Love, Rain, or Me, and like I, can't, I don't want to like them both for some reason. Uh, <laughs> so I like the second more than more than Behind Blue Eyes. Um, I, I, I guess we can close on the song that we all can, can agree on, uh, which is the song that closes the album, which is one of the best rock and roll songs of all time. Yes. Won't get fooled again. Okay, good. Everyone loves Won't Get Fooled Again. Uh, Glenn, Glenn, no, no hot takes here. This is an amazing <laughs> song. Glenn Johns has a book called uh, Sound Man, uh, which is uh, a diary of his time producing music. It's it's I, I have it. I've read it. It's actually not as good as you might think it is. It's fine, but it does sort of read as a diary sometimes, like, on this day, we went for tea, and here we did this, as opposed to uh, analysis or a little deeper. But it's still very good for what it is which is him producing all these amazing bands and amazing albums. And he talks about starting Who's Next and um, Won't Get Fooled Again, if, if I'm not mistaken, was the first song done for the album. And they used the uh, mobile studios the Rolling Stones had had built. And Glenn Johns talks about sitting in this truck away from the band and, and hearing this take of Won't Get Fooled Again and having his his hair just absolutely blown back by everything happening in Won't Get Fooled Again. From the very beginning through the very end, the the, the, the scream, uh, the, the tension. Uh, the, I just love the way that song holds the tension through that, that uh, metronomic sequencer section right, right, right towards the end before Moon's drums puncture that and we, we get to the, the adultery scream. That's one of the most exciting moments in rock and roll history. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it never really wears on me.
uh, I'm excited for all whatever it is, eight and a half minutes of Won't Get Fooled Again from the opening notes of, of that song. Uh, it's an amazing way to close Who's Next. It, it's a perfect song. I, and, and the funny thing about it is that you might not usually think that about an eight and a half minute long song. I remember Dave Marsh who wrote you know that stupid Who biography, you know, Before I Get Old. I, which I bought dutifully when I was a young kid and I didn't like, um, said like, oh, well, this is a self-indulgent song. It's too long, you know? And I'm just like, what What would you cut? What would you cut? And of course, the funny thing is, is if you've ever heard the incredibly atrocious single edit of this song, which cuts it down to three minutes and like 50 seconds or something like that, it's an abomination. You, you, we're all raised on the full the original mm-hmm. full-length version, and when you think about these horrible, it's, it's hack work cutting these things out. <laughs> you need every guitar riff. You need every bar in that song. It, it, uh, I mean, the, the I think of the single, uh, the radio edit of this for three minutes. The way that uh, that horrible restoration of the of the Christ painting. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Or the Virgin Mary, right? Like, with, the, the weird, with the weird, with the weird cartoon face, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, so look, I I don't know. I don't know if this is a perfect song. It is my favorite rock song. It is my favorite rock song. I feel like I can listen to it over and over again. To me, it feels like it lasts half as long as it actually is yeah. because of the momentum of the song. Right. I uh, one of the things that you just uh, that you didn't mention is uh, is Entwistle's bass track, which is oh, mm-hmm. totally overlooked. I think in terms of how good it is, there is on YouTube someone has pulled out yes, the yes. audio uh, from one of the uh, and and it uh, and so you should find that and listen to it because it, it's just so impressive what he's doing. Uh, and the, to me, what's fascinating about it too is I I hate rock songs with a message typically like. Yeah. Like rock songs with a message, don't don't give me that crap. You know, I mean, unless it's just sort of a generalized, uh, you know, message that that uh, uh, that can uh, you know have some kind of applicability. You know, rock. That's not what rock I think is for. Rock is not for that. I mean, the, and I was reminded of that again with the stupid celebrity imagine thing the other day. Like, <laughs> Good Lord, yeah. um, this is a rock message song that works, and it works because the message is one of. Of cynicism about uh, the idea that uh, I mean the idea that humanity can change that's really what I would come down to with this that essentially look you're gonna sign up for something new um, and you're gonna do it again and your kids are gonna do it and everybody's gonna keep doing it because it's (laughs) human okay but you're fooling yourselves if you think it's going to make any difference. But and- it, it's also just so well written, so well observed. The line is so smart, like the chorus, yeah. right? You know, where he says, I tip my cap to the new revolution. You, you can tell it's like a communist country where, like, I'm going to I'm gonna go out in public and pretend. I tip my cap to the new revolution, take, take a bow, um, you know, smile and grin at the change. And, of course, you just know that there's, like, scare quotes around yeah. The word change, <laughs> the change all around me, and then I go back inside where no one can see me, and then I grab my guitar, I get on my knees, and I pray we don't get fooled again.
that is so smart. It is so intelligent. And the thing about it is that, yes, there are – I don't mind – unlike you maybe perhaps, Ben, I, I don't mind political messages in music, even political messages that I don't necessarily agree with. Hey, if the- wait, 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 let me, let, me, let me interrupt. What I said was rock music. I just think that rock music is not a – place where you where like well let me let me take that back a step the dude if the clash wants to sell me like sandinistas <laughs> like I mean, i'm into it I, if they can do it like i don't mind like if the music listen, is good i don't care message songs should be for the folk artist or for the rap artist or like like rock to me just like almost never has like a, a really good i mean I can enjoy Rage Against the Machine. You know, it's not like the messages get in the way of me enjoying good music. Right. I just think that songs that are written like this is this is going to be. I mean, I was I was watching the other day just in preparation for this. Um, uh, you know, obviously a lot of uh, Who videos on YouTube, and one of them perked up uh, a Pete Townsend thing where he was talking about his new novel. Um, and he uh, immediately started talking about Greta Thunberg and how his whole novel was like inspired by uh, Greta Thunberg and what she represents and how his audience needs science about climate change and he's giving it to them in a novel and it's, and it's like okay <laughs> you know like all right it's just like come on dude just play me a song <laughs> so it, it just to me I, don't, I, 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 don't, I go ahead I just, I don't I you know I don't mind that everyone's got a right to their views whether I think they're they're smart or they're stupid but what I love the most about won't get fooled again is how it's epigrammatic like yeah. think about the fact that how many times have every one of us in our daily lives either thought or said aloud or <laughs> written the phrase meet the new boss yeah. same as the old boss <laughs> that is it it, it entered the common vernacular the instant it was released mm-hmm. and you know again it, i've talked about actually in other contexts uh you know what what's the equivalent to the classic rock scream at the end of won't get fooled again by roger daltrey you know i'm thinking like in the 90s you know i could i could make nominate certain choices in the 80s i could but of course they're all referring to and they're all being compared to this freaking song which ends with that incredible David Caruso putting his sunglasses <laughs> on. Yeah! Uh, that's even, you know, sadly why it's even, so legendary. Not even, no, I see it. Not even David Caruso can ruin that for me. I just, you know, <laughs> no. so, so I do love the smash cut, uh, you know, uh, collection you can find on YouTube of all his cheesy lines leading up to it. Bad, bad joke lines. Um, the question that I have for you is this. What is that scream? Is it a victorious scream? Is Mm. it a cynical scream? Is it about rage? Uh, Is it despair for the human condition? Like, what does that scream mean to you, Jeff? I just mean it's an emotional cry. I don't think it means anything other than just an expression of pure id, pure, like, animal id. There's no victory here. I mean, there's no way you can think that if you listen to the lyrics of the song the, the song is basically saying the cycle of like right. revolution is going to continue on forever and nothing really changes it's just the beards have all grown longer overnight so yeah that's the way i interpret it but it just sounds so powerful it's it's i can't again credit to glenn johns he, roger daltrey always had this power within him and he was developing it basically during that time when he was touring Tommy, mm-hmm. but the first time ever you hear him, it's the lion's roar. It's so amazing. Rock and roll might not solve your problems, but it does let you dance all over them. <laughs> uh, uh, 
thoughts and his uh, uh, things like that. So, like, look, I just I love this song, and uh, and to me, uh, the fact that it has endured as a staple um, is is a testament to its power, just yeah. given its length uh, and all the things that would say, you know, it, we're as a radio station, we're not going to play a song this long, and yet they do because people want to hear it. Yeah, Scott. I don't have anything else to say about about uh, won't get fooled again or or, or who's next. Except I, I really do think it's uh, it's the best from this period. But there are uh, there are singles to talk about. This, yeah, the, the who did a great job. The who does a great job did a great job of figuring out what to release in between albums, in between albums proper, right? And we'll we'll, we'll have uh, we'll talk maybe about some of the compilations in a bit. But in between. Uh, Who's next in Quadrophenia? You have these uh, series of singles, all all from Lifehouse, Jeff. I think. Yeah, they're basically all from that that writing session. Not all of them were recorded during the Who's Next sessions. I think only one of them was technically finished up. That's the first one, but they're all from that same project. And let's see action join together and uh, relayer those three. And I don't know how much you guys like or dislike any of these three. They're pretty good. Um, Joined together um, is um, I, I do like that sort that herky jerky rhythm it's got to it. Uh, Let's see, action has the very laid back kind of countryish feel, uh, and, and again still goes to you know Let's see freedom. A lot of uh, have these notes a few a few places, especially around this era about you know uh, the difference between truth and lies. And Let's see, action has the you know now I know for sure both sides lied. Kind of going back to the themes we just discussed and won't get fooled again, of course. Uh, but these singles worked very well to sort of tie the audience over until uh, until the next album. I mean, I, I'll say this, that there, these three singles, which are all sort of like, you know, the, the trailing off aftermath of the Lifehouse Who's Next project, uh, they're all certainly entertaining. There's nothing bad about them. Uh, but the only one that I really truly treasure is let's see action i really like that song yeah it's got that little kind of a countryish feel because it's you know it starts with the big acoustic comping and all mm. of that but there's that middle that middle section that that always gets me you know where pete comes in roger is singing the song and then pete comes in for the middle it a trick that they always use on who songs he says you know give me a drink boy wash my feet i'm so tired of running from my own heat take this package and here's what you do gonna get this information through and it's just again he turns like a rollicking rock song into suddenly like oh Here's a here's a small cameo in the middle of it, and this is a trick that you would see come back into the fore in a major way on their next album. We you know, Roger has these big declamatory lines, and then Pete comes in in the middle, and you know just you know, basically gives you a little bit of whiplash, <laughs> sets you on a shock, and I think that's most effective here. Give me a drink, boy, wash my feet. I'm so tired of running from my own heat. Take this package and here's what you do. Gonna get this information through. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I need. But I'll get to where I'm gonna end up. That's all. Let's see action, let's see action, let's see people, let's see 
Join Together and Relay, they're both good songs. Join Together is the better of the two. They played that one live a lot. Yeah. Relay, I think, is the less distinguished of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's sort of Pete working out as he's trying to germinate his next big project, you know, the uh, remainders of the failed, quote unquote, failed Lifehouse mm-hmm. project. Ben? I don't like any of these songs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang up. Yeah, drop, drop, Scott dropping from the call. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't. I, I mean, I don't think they're awful. I, they're just not my favorites. Um, I, I find joined together to be just a little cloying. Um, uh, I mean, I do like the the mouth harp mm-hmm. sort of synth thing and, and the harmonica. Um, but uh, let's see action. I just I don't. It just doesn't jive with me. I, I mean, I I don't think they're bad songs. I, you know, I won't turn the radio off, but it's. It, to me, this is just kind of a this is a between period where you're figuring stuff out uh, for for Townsend, and and so it's it's like, you know, as you said, it's it's this in between, and I feel like these feel like in between songs. They don't they don't feel like a, a you know uh, part of of a coherent whole, which is what we actually get next, uh, and which. I'm eager to move on to. <laughs> and, and by the way, before we move on to that, I just want to spare a word. Uh, in 1972, while the Who and Townsend were germinating their next big thing, um, they released a compilation album that has yeah. since gone down in the annals of uh, you know greatest hits as maybe the greatest, greatest hits of all time. It's called Meaty, Beady, Big and Bouncy. We don't really have to talk about it that much because every single song on this album, this should tell you something about how good this album is, every single song on this record we discussed at length in our first episode. This is The Who recounting their 60s era as like singles, goofy, comical, hit-making artists. Um, it's a record that, you know, if you get like one of these more modern greatest hits compilations, like the who at 50 or like <laughs> you know those kinds of things you're gonna have every single song on it right but in in a weird way it's almost better to hear the the absolute essence of the who as a 60s hit making band boiled down to its purest essence and meaty big beanie beanie big and bouncy which again is a hilarious title that every time i try to pronounce it i get wrong <laughs> uh, meaty beanie big and bouncy it's fun and uh Gosh, you, you really should check it out and just spin those 12 songs on their own terms. So in this period where a meaty, beady, big and bouncy is being released, Townsend's working on the next project. Uh, we just talked about who's next, uh, which as, as I put my cards on the table, I, I think it's the finest album of this part two that we'll be discussing. It's has songs that everyone knows, uh, songs that are that are played on the radio to this day, it has what Ben said is the best or, or favorite, I forget, but be- rock song of all time and won't get fooled again. It's got Bargain and Bob O'Reilly and all this stuff. Who's Next sounds immaculate because Glenn John- Johns produced it. And all this, Jeff, and I know, because I know you, you're going to tell me that it's not even, Who's Next is not even the best album of this period from The Who. It's Quadrophenia?
Quadrophenia is the greatest rock album of all time, and I don't think there's any higher praise that I can offer it than that. I, I, I've literally spent money, hard-earned money, wasted money on tens of thousands of CDs and albums. I've covered the entire spectrum of popular music from metal to ambient to folk to country to prog to pop to punk to lo-fi to whatever the hell you want to call it. And Quadrophenia still stands out for me as the most ambitious and fully realized musical project that anyone has ever pulled off in the genre at large. Moreover, I think it does something that I think all pr truly profound art ought to do. It deeply involves the listener emotionally. There's a lot of impressive, intellectually impressive music and art out there that keeps its audience at an enforced distance. It kind of seems to be the modern aesthetic, you know, think of pop art, think of Warhol, think of all whatever you want to call the stuff that's, you know, at MoMA or whatever. But Quadrophenia engages you in your head and your heart without ever seeking to cheap or manipulative levels. This is an album that actually evokes, for me at least, the experience of the sublime. And man, that is no mean feat. Because think about it, Townsend was writing about the early 60s mod youth culture over a decade later, you know, from the fact and from the point of view of an outsider. And as me, an American, listening in 1995, what the hell do I know about any of this stuff? I learned from this album, all right? Nevertheless, all of this stuff is miraculously free of cliché or patronization. The lyrics, they're, they're not poetic in the same way that maybe Dylan's are. But then again, Townsend is not writing about like psychedelic jesters and sad-eyed ladies of the lowland. <laughs> He's writing about a lower-middle-class malcontent kid, and they depict the emotionally chaotic mind of some moody, dreamy, confused adolescent um, who's, you know, getting high on uppers and stuff like that with these really sharp and subtle strokes. You know, I think of, I think of in particular, the one that always jumps out at me is cut my hair. I, I think that's really underappreciated as a song. It captures that poignantly real ambiguity in Jimmy's relationship with his parents, you know, cause you know, you know, they're not monsters, which is how most people who are writing the kind of same song would portray them as. And Jimmy recognizes that even as he fights with them. The kids at school had parents that seemed so cool. And though I don't want to hurt them, mine want me their way. I clean my room and my shoes. But my mother found a box of blues. And there doesn't seem much hope. They let me stay.
spend all day raving about how perfect Pete Townsend's lyrics are on that album. He's working on levels that, that, that people usually can only dream of attaining. But I really want to also pay tribute to the music as well. You know, he's got Townsend's got these tangled thematic and structural ideas, but he expresses them brilliantly while the music carries the weight of the, that searing storyline. And also while, you know, totally, you know, flipping rocking, you know, <laughs> there's the real me, the punk and the Godfather, 515, drowned, Dr. Jimmy, I've had enough. Those are the true heirs of that big musical breakthrough that Pete Townsend scored on things like Baba O'Reilly and Bargain and Won't Get Fooled Again. And, you know, you, you have this moment where like intelligent hard rock fuses with indelible melodies and performances and it, it just builds this edifice this giant structure uh you know where you don't even mind that the, again the conceit is so tangled you know jimmy you know pete townsend is trying to write about a kid from the mod era but he's also trying to use the quadrophenic play on schizophrenia right mm-hmm. you know to represent the four aspects of his personality which of course conveniently also stand in for the four members of the who right so like there's a keith version there's a pete version there's a roger version there's a there's a john version but yeah that could that could sound you know hopelessly twee but it doesn't sound twee you know the rock which is I guess I might even say my favorite song on an album, an album where I don't think there is a single weak track except for maybe the Dirty Jobs. But The Rock reprises each of the four like musical themes that play throughout the album. They all inter- intertwine with one another. And then it brings them all together into a fusion of four into one. It's a microcosm of all the emotional high points and climaxes of what's come before. going to end this by saying that what i find to be so miraculous about this album is that finally pete townsend did what he wanted Mm. he got it i talk about how his reach has exceeded his grasp so often Uh, but the most amazing thing of all really about quadrophenia is how it vindicates all those artistic and psychological tortures that he subjected himself to as he was desperately chasing down that elusive muse of his he finally did it he created the musical and lyrical and conceptual and emotional masterpiece that he'd been striving to realize for nearly a decade um in a world of disposable pop music, Quadrophenia, for me, for me, ranting as I am, it looms large as something incalculably more profound and long-lasting, a monument to a bygone era, a tribute to the power and the glory of a great band, a pee into the crazy, contradictory emotions beating in every single intelligent adolescent in myself included. And finally, it's proof that all-consuming artistic ambition can result in something truly inspiring. 
you know, I give it five stars. I give it ten out of ten. Whatever. It's, <laughs> it's simply it's the most treasured album in my entire musical collection. Anyone want to follow that? <laughs> well, let me just say one of the things that is interesting about this uh, is because Townsend had such a clear vision of what he wanted, uh, and basically just brings in his demos. Uh, there's that makes some of the other songs that are added. Uh, by other uh, band members in particular, uh, more interesting. Uh, so particularly, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, 515, um, which is, uh, is you know, done without a demo and I think has, you know, some more energy to it. Um, and uh, I think that, it, you know, I really can't, I, I can't say anything that you haven't said about, you know, how excellent the, the ability to sort of see real genius achieve something that he's been trying to achieve all along, uh, you know, is, um, this me, is his Mona Lisa. This is his last supper. I mean, he yeah. did it. He did it. He burned out in a major way, but he did it. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the real me is, uh, one that is, uh, is certainly, uh, you know, the, and a testament to, again, the skill of, of N. Wenzel on the base. It's it's also one of these things where you you're kind of seeing uh, in Quadrophenia uh, the last moments where uh, where Keith Moon will be the Keith Moon mm-hmm. that that we wanted him to be, um, and it's it's sort of the you know right before he really gets dragged under by all his substance abuse and the and the daily uh, bottle of uh, Covassier and uh, and champagne and uh, and pills and everything else like it just it, it so for me there's a, it's it's always been an album that's tinged with sadness because of that uh, because you know that you're kind of uh, you're seeing them at their apex but you're also seeing them you know at the kind of the last point where they really are going to be the who that you know and love without having to uh, you know navigate a lot of other things and, and a lot of, of you know tragedy and, and other stuff that goes on um, I I think it's uh, I think it's a fascinating album I think it uh, you know deserves uh, attention today more attention than it gets um, because uh, people mostly know the hits that that uh, that come from other albums and and not you know uh, quadrophenia material and uh you know in kind of the uh, just to kind of continue the story this is uh, you know an album that is a perfect victory you know it it is very bittersweet because it as as much as they are able to achieve what townsend has already always strived for the attempt to put this on stage and to have their audiences relate to it the way that they want them to it, you know crushes them and yeah. and becomes a huge trap so it's that for me, look, I, I, I love the album. Um, I, you know, I've listened to it, you know, a ton. 
uh, and the the creative energy behind it is uh, is amazing. But it also just has always had uh, this uh, this feeling of breaking apart that the the band is is going is doing this one last thing before they start to disintegrate in different ways it's the swan song in a yeah. way it yeah. is it is but that's part of what makes it so painful and beautiful <laughs> yeah. for me yeah. anyway yeah. scott you're you're going to agree with me that it's the greatest album ever made right well, i mean i judge based on what i said previously i can't i can't but that's not to say it's not a great great album i you know of course uh quadrophenia uh is is an album that starts strong and does not relent. I mean, it. it, it um, you mentioned Dirty Jobs. There might be one or two others, but but really, from start to finish, um, especially the starts of each side, man. I mean, the real me, which Ben just mentioned, uh, just full throttle. Who uh, perhaps Ed Whistle's best bass performance, just amazing, running up and down the the neck. Uh, you realize there's no guitar on on that track, basically for for ninety nine point nine percent of its running time. Well, you have it's those... just it's just moon drumming underneath, and then you you just hear Entwistle like do 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 do, and Roger singing over top of it. It's amazing. But when you do, you just have the, the, those slicing guitar chords of Townsend. That's that's the guitar on it, which works so so yeah. well. Uh, I I love I'm one. Uh, from the first uh, half of, of Quadrophenia, that shift again that's worked for them very well from, from this delicate ballad and then the song just springs to life in no time flat, turning into a, a harder rock. There's electric twanging riffs of Townsend and the lyrics moving from, from self-pity uh, th- at the start, you know, every year is the same, I feel it again, I'm a loser, no chance to win. Uh, but by the end, it, it turns to envy and bitterness. It's a great set of lyrics from Townsend. Fifteen is is a great great song. I used to play that one all the time on the radio. I love the energy. I love that uh, those those horns, um, horns just, which were played by again John Entwistle. John Entwistle. We, we right. actually it's the first time we'll note this that he wasn't just a bassist. He was he was a, a, a he played horns and French horn, trumpet, all the things, all the horns you hear on this album that you might think were like oh well that's obviously brought in some guys. Like, or, they've got right, they brought right. session musicians in. Nope, that's John Entwistle, uh, just a tremendously talented musician.
Uh, sea and Sand, which is right after 515, is almost like this mini opera unto itself. There's slow, dreamy parts and up-tempo sections. Uh, and um, what else? You mentioned Dr. Jimmy, which is uh, this very um, very dark side of the personality revealed uh, for, for our, our title character here when he's under the influence of drugs, under the influence of of alcohol and fighting. who is she i'll rape it right right, right. i but, mean but then but then it flips then it flips suddenly to is it me for a moment the stars are shining uh, it, all of a sudden he, he did that 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 other side comes immediately out i'm just so impressed how pete townsend was capable of you know not only having these ideas but sort of i guess coalescing them writing for personalities so like you know you have the is it me thing dr jimmy like yeah i'm, I'm an aggressive i'm aggro i'm like you know i'm, I'm a brutal rapist i'm a, you know nobody can intimidate me um, and then all of a sudden flips to the internal monologue where mm-hmm. it's like but, but is this really who i am is this is this really what i am this is not what i believe in is it me The heat is rising, the past is calling. Is it me for a moment? The stars are falling. The heat is rising, the past is calling. And it's the same thing with Bellboy, which is the, the, right. the Keith Moon feature, right? <laughs> you know, where like you know, you know, he starts with Roger singing, you know, in the in the voice of Jimmy. He runs into his. This is a, there's a plot to this album. It's actually a coherent plot, by the way. Unlike Tommy, um, you know, this is where the hero runs into his old like you know the guy he idolized as a kid back in the days when they were having street riots in Brighton. Um, you know, and he's he finds if he's working as a bellboy at the hotel there. It's like he's completely come down in the world. And, you know, so Keith does his big, you know, brusque voice like, oh, I've got a good job and I'm newly born. You should see me dressed up in my uniform. And then he flips into his like sort of weedy, quiet, vulnerable falsetto where he says, sometimes I still sleep on the beach. And I remember when stars were in reach. Early to work Spend my 
That is just profoundly moving. And I've, I thought that the second I heard it in 1995, I was 14, 15 years old. I still think it to this day when I'm pushing 40. And I'm just so impressed with the character writing that Pete, he gets himself inside the head of not only the character that he's writing for and writing about, but also kind of gets himself in the, high, in the head of the other members of the band hmm. it's a very kind of a it's an emotionally generous album which is something that it's impossible to miss when you listen to the whole thing i'm sorry i just yeah i'm interjecting because i'm no. so obsessed with quadrophenia <laughs> <laughs> you're fine um I, um what I, I, that actually took me to the end of my uh, album notes so ben anything else you want to add um i think that uh just when when you look back at this uh, I'm curious as to why, from Jeff's perspective, just given how much had gone into this, how much it was uh, a perfection of what uh, Pete had wanted to achieve, that he thinks that the attempt to take it from the studio into uh, the performative uh, frame uh, was so trying on the band and, and why they felt the need to interact with the audience and like explain the story as opposed to just play the music well it's funny because if you hear the early versions of them performing tommy like in i, I have the, these bootlegs these they're, they're audio bootlegs they're, they're not soundboards from like early 1969 you say august july uh back before it had become like a big hit uh Pete does that. He actually, you know, he says, he explains like, well, I don't know, here's the point where Tommy gets, you know, sexually molested by his evil uncle Ernie, you know, it's just kind of weird to hear. Um, but that happens like, and then of course, by the time they're playing it in late 69 and 1970, there's no narration. They just go you know, stop to stop station to station. They don't care about it. Uh, but I think it's because um, Pete, cared so much about this music and you can you can tell because the, the other aspect of quadrophenia that i guess i hasn't been remarked upon is is how deeply self-referential it is it isn't just a story about a kid in the mod era it's a story about the who and about pete townsend's feelings about how this band related to their early audience and how they may have you know you know helped them and also let them down there's one of the most classic songs on this album is the punk and the godfather mm-hmm. where um you know you know jimmy the, the character like goes to see the who and you know you know he, he he encounters them and he finds out that they're just you know like all you know rock star geezers and he's disillusioned with them and, and then you have pete coming back in singing that, that great line where he's like, I'm the guy in the sky flying high. Don't, don't you know I told lies? I'm a punk in the gutter. I'm a punk with a stutter. And then he does that that whole like, my, 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 my generation parodying, brutally parodying what The Who had been in 1965. I'm the guy in the sky flying high. Flashing eyes, no surprise. I told lies.
That is just so self. Again, you could maybe criticize it for being like almost narcissistic, like you're I'm a little skeptic. You're, you're looking in a mirror and you're, you're navel gazing or something like that. But I think it's such a perfect comment uh, from Townsend on how he felt his role and the band's role in these children's lives had been. You know, there's all this talk about like rock is important. You got to do it for the kids, man. You got to give them something to hope for, some reason to keep going on. And then he realized that all of that's meaningless. And that's the point that he's talking about, you know, like with, with his narrator, with his hero, rather, his protagonist, that like he, he gets disillusioned from all of his idols and, you know, all of the people that he was supposed to be fascinated with or, you know, hold up on a pedestal. And he just goes out on his own mystical journey which is what the ending of the album is, where he goes out, just hijacks a boat, goes out to a rock in the middle of the ocean and, you know, has love reign over him. <laughs> and that's, I don't know. It, it, it hit me like uh, a 10-ton weight being dropped on my head, Warner Brothers cartoon style when I was a kid when I heard it. And I can never listen to it again these days without feeling the same way about it. Can I ask? I know this is technically out of uh, out of chronological order, but it is the, the album. Then it is forbidden. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like I feel like we should talk about the movie here. Um, yeah, I, I, have you, have, have, Scott? Have you seen the film? I've not seen the film. Well, I, I, what I can just uh, the only question I had for you is it's just interesting to me because personally i i tend to like uh uh like the beatles rock and roll movies just because they're silly and entertaining and, <laughs> right. and, and like there's little bits in them um to me i i the movie's fine but what's more interesting to me is just the people who show up in the movie sting um, namely sting and ray winstone yeah. and uh and and sting in particular is in this movie before the first like he he does the movie before the first police album drops. And I just I mean, have to he think he plays the ace face. He plays the guy who's yeah. the bellboy character. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and what's it has to be so bizarre <laughs> to have to like play this character in this movie, have your album drop, and then have a song from your album get to a, a chart higher than any song from Quadrophenia, from the movie that you just did for this. I, th I think I think Outlandos de Moore came out before the film. I, I I'm not sure, but I feel like Quadrophenia, the film was '79, and the police is first. No, 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 no. I, I said made the film, meaning like he acted in the film. Right. Like I mean, he was, he was. It was still. He was still like, yeah. like a minor, like yeah. you know, like some guy playing on the rock scene. Yeah. And, and yeah. of course, you know, the bad thing is where this would lead to him like starring in Dune with uh, David Lynch. So. I okay. Well, we need to have a whole <laughs> different conversation about that because I yeah. like Dune. <laughs> I, I, I kind of sort of. I kind of sort of like it too. I will kill him. I will kill him. Anyways, the point is, is that uh, <laughs> I could I could rant about this all day, and and there's there's not enough time in the world for me to talk about everything I love about this. I I've had enough is probably one of my five favorite songs from this era. I vowed to myself that I wouldn't like recommend any songs from Quadrophenia at the end of the show because you just <laughs> got to get the goddamn album. Yeah. But I love that no, wait, song. No, neither, neither do I, and it's because I think it is. It is an album. It is not. You can't really pick it apart in the way, and 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 it just doesn't. It doesn't work that way. And and frankly, it's it's kind of the opposite 
of what we were talking about with who's next in the sense that you can pluck those songs out because they don't have to be part of that story uh, and take them uh, as they are. But yes, I, I think uh, I think that's about as much as I have to say about Quadrophenia too. So, uh, Scott, any thoughts before uh, we move on to uh, the the most famous outtakes album of all time? We are good to go. Well, right. we don't really actually even have to spend too much time on this record because the, the name of this record. Okay, point this out. Ben already made this point, and it really is important that the you know Quadrophenia was both a climax in the Who's career and also like a kind of a crushing blow. They went out on the road. They tried to play this stuff. This is part of my joke at the beginning of the show. You know, they had all these tapes, these tape loops, these click tracks that Keith had to play to. Uh, they couldn't do it. It was a disaster. They ended up having to strip out like almost all of the songs. You know, by the time the tour had ended, they were only playing like six or seven of these tracks and it was none of the ones that had like, you know, you know, loops involved so like there's no love rain or me there's no i've had enough there's no um you know uh quadrophenia or the rock none of the instrumentals which i think are some of the best parts of these song these album um and it kind of killed them as a live act in a way uh because from this point on they're gonna they're kind of going to become a greatest hits act in concert they play a few new songs from their new album this that but it, it's not like Every time you go out, you get a different experience. No, every time you go out, you're going to hear, you know, my generation. You're going to hear I Can't Explain. You're going to hear, you know, the best bits of Tommy. You're going to hear Won't Get Fooled Again. It is um, It is odd, to, looking forward a bit as we go through the, the coming albums, if you if you dig a little deeper and, and, and just read about them, like, you know, this song's never been played live, or this song was played twice, then dropped until 1996. Um, exactly. Whole yeah. bunches, whole swaths of the catalog to come never were integrated into the live act. Never, never, because I think that they had had such a traumatic experience with trying to play Quadrophenia, which technology just didn't allow back then. And to be honest, a four-piece band didn't allow back then uh, that they gave up on it and they just said, like, we'll just give the people what they want. Uh, speaking of giving the people what they want, what comes out next isn't a new album. It's an outtakes album. It's a delightful little outtakes album. We've discussed a lot of the songs on this record already. The name of it is called Odds and Sods. And even that term, Odds and Sods, has kind of become a watchword for like hilarious outtakes albums sure. from great bands. Um, there's all sorts of great stuff from the 60s. And then in the early 70s, the, the Lifehouse era, that's basically where it ends. They did a reissue that I think is actually less than essential. I think you just might as well just get the original 14-song version. But like they got, they got stuff on here like uh, called Now I'm a Farmer, where Pete Townsend is, and Roger Daltrey are singing about the virtues of being a yeoman farmer. <laughs> and the chorus literally is, it's alarming how charming it is to be a farmer. Now I'm a farmer. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love stuff like this. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any particular strong opinions on odds and sods, but I, I think it's way better than most other outtake albums. So I uh, I really only have a strong opinion about uh, one song on this, and that's Naked Eye, um, which I think is uh, 
is very is is underrated, and that every Who fan any or anybody who just likes the Who generally should hear it. Um, and it's not something that gets radio play, so uh, or is not, you know tends to be as as ubiquitous as some of their other uh, songs. Uh, but I just I think it's a great you know uh, uh, example of of a song that they did really well live, uh, and um, that everybody should hear. I also think it's so futuristic. I love those yeah. lines that again predicted what the world was going to be like in the in the internet era, where he says, like, you know, <laughs> you press any button and milk and honey flows. The world yep. begins behind your neighbor's wall. It all seems fine to the naked eye, but it don't really happen that way at all. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I like it. It's very very prescient. So. And the one that I would uh, highlight is actually uh, Put the Money Down, which that's a Lifehouse track too, right, Jeff? Yeah, it yeah. is. But again, it was recorded after Lifehouse, yes, but yes. it was written for those written sessions. For life. Yeah. But uh, John, this was an Entwistle project. Entwistle put together the, the songs. He uh, figured out the takes that were going to be used. He, he, I think, designed the cover as well. And uh, on Put the Money Down, the, the, he had uh, he had Adultery Vocal Track, which was subpar. And uh, he said he, he was trying to get Daltrey in the studio to recut the, the vocals for Put the Money Down, which is a just nice lumbering rocker. And, uh, and at some point, Whistle wrote, uh, wrote Daltrey or left a message saying, hey, is it okay if I just record the vocals on this myself? And Daltrey <laughs> replied back and said, yeah, it's fine if I can redo the bass for that track too. And the next day he was there to recut the vocal line for Put the Money Down because Dalton was not going to be uh, you know, upstage by John Enwistle trying to do vocals on that track. But I, I do like Put the Money Down a lot from, uh, from Odds and Sods. Entire songwriting approach takes a huge shift, major burnout after Quadrophenia. Yeah. Not only just the massive, you know, personal psychological effort required to get this thing over the finish line, but then there was the disaster of the tour where the songs wouldn't work. They tried to play them; they had to drop half of them, more than half of them, um, probably. And actually, there's this famous thing, and people are depressed because they were hoping there would be video of it, uh, where in like the rehearsals for Quadrophenia, the Quadrophenia tour. Uh, Pete and Roger got into a huge fight like on stage when they were like rehearsing it and uh, Roger literally knocked Pete out punched him in the face knocked him right out like he fell down to this the floor stone cold out and they were like framed that he was dead and like you know Keith Moon was standing over him saying oh god Pete we're sorry we love you we really love you I'm so sorry traumatic times indeed and so what happens with their next album that comes out in 1975? There is a notable shift to a different kind of songwriting. Yeah. No longer do we have these ambitious sort of epics, you know, you know writing for like sci-fi or, uh, you know, personal themes. No, it, it, it's autobiographical narrative. Pete Townsend is writing about himself. <clears throat> He's writing about himself in, in, in the most obvious and painful way. So painful, in fact, that... Uh, 
one of the best songs in this album, in my opinion, is a song called However Much I Booze. Mm -hmm. And Roger Daltrey, when Pete played him the demo, said, I'm not going to sing that. He refused to sing it. Because, you know, what does it begin? I I see myself on TV. I'm a faker. I'm a paper clown. It's clear to all my friends that I habitually lie. I just bring them down. He's just just talking about his horrible, horrible feelings of uh, worthlessness and, you know, uselessness. And this kind of, this lacerating vein of, I wouldn't call it self-deprecation because self-deprecation implies humor. There's nothing humorous about this. Pete Townsend is working his demons out on record. And that is the who by numbers. myself on TV I'm a faker, a paper clown It's clear to all my friends that I habitually lie I just bring them down I claim proneness to exaggeration But the truth lies in my frustration The children of the night, they all pass me by Got to trust myself in brandy and sleep a high And I'd also say it's the most underrated album of their career. I uh, agree with that quite a bit. I, I think By Numbers is not just a good album. I think it's a great album. It's it's not on the level of Who's Next or Quadrophenia, but I still think it's a great album. And, and despite the circumstances it was made, uh, uh, despite in which the circumstances it was made, as Jeff just went down, the songwriting... Uh, Townsend had kind of a, a writer's block. I, I think they, I think they recorded. I think everything he had, they put on by numbers. I mean, there no, no outtakes. There was nothing left over. It was all there. He was having some trouble putting these songs together. Uh, these personal, confessional type songs, and uh, it took like three months to record. Which back then was forever. The band was kind of drifting in and out of of, of caring to even perform these songs, uh, according to, to to Glenn Johns. And yet, you come out with this album, which uh, starts with. One of my favorite Who songs. I love Slip, Slip Kid. Kid. It's so good. It's so good. It's sort of shuffle groove by Moon. That that start stop rhythm. Do 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 do. Uh, tinkling piano in the breaks and the, and the lyrics kind of warning. I think Townsend's original thought was you know warning kids about the music business. Um, and really is kind of a turns into sort of a warning about about life in general i guess and no, no easy way to be free but i love slip kids so much from start to finish
Uh, but you get, dig deeper. It does tail off a bit on side two. I will cede you that point, but the first half is very strong. However much I booze, which Jeff just talked about, is great. Uh, Squeezebox, I love the music. Even as like a 12-year-old, I thought the lyrics were sort of immature and silly. Uh, hey, listen, we talked about on our last episode that there are so many great songs written about masturbation, <laughs> pictures of Lily being one of them. Well, here's a pretty fun song written about breasts. Really, you know, there's just you know, there's just nothing wrong with a song <laughs> written about how fun it is to squeeze breasts. This is a poorly, you know, a poorly disguised dirty joke. Mama's got a squeeze box she wears on her chest. Oh yeah, yeah. that's not an accordion, my friend. Yeah. 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 Come on. Uh, Imagine a Man is one of the strongest tracks on uh, on By Numbers. A very simple song, piano, acoustic guitar, a uh, song about Townsend feeling... I mean, he was 30, 30 when By Numbers was, was put out. But the, the feeling you get on Imagine a Man is like 50. It's just someone who has been through everything and is, is starting to feel it, feeling over the hill, uh, feeling that the, the, the best is, is, is behind you and, and maybe you're not capable of even being good anymore. It's a very honest song. Imagine a road so long looking backwards you can't see where it really began Imagine a road so large and so smooth that against it a man is an ant And you And uh, success story, which I think is an Entwistle tune, uh, has very good this very good low end push through the song. I like success story, and uh, it also leads to one of my favorite moments in the Kids Are All Right, the movie, where you know Entwistle is walking down his house, and you see all the bass guitars lined up, and he he takes Roger Daltrey's gold records off the wall, and he shoots them with a machine gun. <laughs> I mean, whatever we'll get to that you go watch the film folks yeah and then and then blue red and gray is just also very beautiful it's one that townsend didn't even want on the album because it sounds this sort of well it sounds just a, a note of optimism in the middle of all this very depressing uh these depressing sad lyrics and yet i think you can still take blue red and gray as a as uh, reading it as, as false optimism, uh, because it's almost so over the top. I, I like every minute of the day, right? And it's simple pleasures, and every second is is, is good. And, and certainly it's not the, the feeling you get from the rest of, uh, of the album, but it's just Townsend and a ukulele and a, and a simple story song. Uh, very good. Doesn't, doesn't quite hold up to the very, very end, but by numbers is very underrated. However much I booze. I mean, I just think it's a, a very interesting song, and I think it's uh, very obviously personal. Um, uh, Roger refused to sing it 
because of it uh, being that way. Uh, I think it's something that should uh, get more attention than it does as a song. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's to me, you've said a lot about the other ones that are on this uh, album, but uh, it's one that I think, I don't know, it just it sticks with me a little bit uh, more than, than some of the others. Um, I, I think that this is an interesting album, but again, you feel that disintegration. You feel the difference in the songwriting. Um, and and it's something that, you know, they'll never be able to really get back again uh, as they had uh, uh, with Quadrophenia at their, at their peak. I, I really actually enjoy the vast majority of this album. There there are some moments on it that are just so bitter, too bitter for me to really kind of handle. I think the, the you know, how many friends have I really got is the one that kind of like can, wears on me where, you know, he, he, it's, it's Roger singing in Pete's voice, you know, saying, how many friends have I really got? You can count them on the one hand. But they're, they're, they're songs like Success Story and However Much I Booze. And I think one that we haven't mentioned yet that I think is really amazing is Dreaming from the Waste. Again, a personal critique from Pete Townsend. He's literally saying, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm an old, he's like, what was he? He's like 29 years old at yeah. the time of this song. He's 29, 30 years old, right? He's too old. You know, he's like, I'm burning tires for some guy whose hair is turning white. I know the girls that I passed, they just ain't impressed. I'm too old to get them, but you're too young to rest. Um, it's a wonderful song about feeling like you're over the hill and aged, which is, you know, these days when everybody doesn't feel like, you know, you know they're old until they're like, like legitimately 65 years old. You know, <laughs> Pete is writing eloquently about feeling like he's completely desiccated and like, you know, a dried up old husk and has no hopes and has, has nothing, nothing to look forward to in his future in, you know, you know, 1975 when he's 30 years old. <laughs> I think that, and of course, that also has just one of the most fantastic bass lines that John Entwistle ever played as well.
So after after buying numbers, we have another uh, what I think three years uh, between buying numbers and what would turn out uh, tragically to be the last Who album to include Keith Moon. He was uh, in fact uh, not not to be taken away as the uh, the cover of Who Are You so, sitting in a chair with that uh, stenciled on the back. Just a couple of weeks, uh, Moon would Moon would die. What three weeks after the release of Who Are You? And while I cannot deny, guys, the power of that title track, um, because it harkens back to a to an earlier Who sound, I think it almost sounds like it could could have been on Who's Next. Certainly, I don't have a great deal of good to talk about the rest of this album. Jeff mentioned how by numbers had come together uh, roughly um, with, with the songwriting. I mean, you had on on Who Are You? Moon was just totally out of it by this point he could barely play he, there's a song uh, Music Must Change that, uh, that they just stripped the drum track off of because Moon could not play in 6-8 time and so he plays just the cymbals on Music Must Change uh, Daltrey had throat surgery Townsend sliced his hand out a window of fighting with his parents their keyboardist broke his arm all these bad no, no, things. not only that, but but Daltrey literally Glenn Johns was was producing this album. Yes, yes, yes. And and then Roger Daltrey like didn't like his decision to add strings to a song. I think it was like uh, it's uh, had uh, enough. Had I enough. Was, yeah. And so he literally just punched him in the face, <laughs> knocked him out, and that was the end of Glenn Johns on Who Are You? And they had to bring in. They brought in Pete Townsend's brother-in-law <laughs> to produce the rest of the album. John Astley. Um, by the way, I mean, before I move on, I, I have a question for both of you guys. When do you, in your own personal estimation, think that you hear the decline in Keith Moon as a drummer? Is it this album? It's obvious, right? Yeah. But did it, it, is it obvious to you on Who by Numbers, Quadrophenia? Where, where do you think you actually draw the line? It's like, oh man, something has gone really wrong here. For me, it's by numbers. Um, I just think that there's a couple of points in it where where you feel like it's just not what you heard before. Um, the there's just, uh, I mean, there's just an obvious decline there. And uh, and when you see the kids are all right, you can see it. Like, I mean, it's just visually there for you. Um, and it's it's very sad to witness. Um, obviously, uh, Moon was trying to. I mean, and we can go into this if you want, but he was trying to quit. Uh, he when it came to alcohol, but he wanted to do so in his in his home, and he was uh, he had been prescribed this drug that he was warned uh, not to uh, mix with alcohol, and he was only supposed to take like three pills a day. He ended up taking more than thirty of them after uh, uh, coming home from uh, seeing a movie with uh, the McCartneys and uh, and uh, getting in, into an argument with his girlfriend, and so it uh, it's very tragic, uh, very sad, but he was just clearly. Uh, you know, a guy in decline, and we see this a lot in rock music. You know, I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's just sad to see, of course. Um, but this is also a band that I feel like is, uh, uh, is I don't want to say in decline because they're still producing uh, interesting uh, music, but there is this aspect under underneath, uh, uh, underneath who are you that basically is a an acknowledgement that there's a wish on Pete's part that they really had died before they got old. Um, you know, that, that, uh, he seemed to be just kind of dissatisfied with the way that the band is. Um, I don't think that he really afford to, uh, have them dissolve. Um, uh, but it's also, you know, a situation where I think he wanted to kind of 
pass the torch and 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 you know go and do a solo career and, and stuff like that um uh and you know the the that is supposedly the the storyline under underneath who are you uh which is that you know which is an evening that he uh shared uh with a number of other musicians including um, two guys from the sex pistols right yeah, yeah exactly and uh they were dismayed by the idea of of uh, uh you know dissolve of the who dissolving uh and he ends up you know passing out in soho so it's it's it, you, you just you kind of hear that um in in guitar and pen and you hear it in uh you know some of the uh uh some of the things that that basically just feel like uh he is ready to move on from this and so to me i i am I'm, I'm not a big fan of the album i think that this is i think it's it's uh you know this this sadness that we uh, have sort of gone through you know post quadrophenia uh that is leading us inevitably to uh to this band not being what they once were and and is cemented by moon's tragic death i'll admit that i like this band a lot more uh right like this album rather a lot more than the other of you two do i i don't think it's it's one of their greatest albums i i think though that there's a lot of quality here i think the thing that that kind of rankles on me the most is that i don't like any of john and twistle's songs that much and he gets three of them on this album trick of the lights okay Uh, you know what actually if i was gonna pick one it would have been 905 i like the stupid like sci-fi thing you know like my name is 905 (laughs) and i'm glad to be alive you know it's uh that's fun um but i don't really care for you know had enough and and the thing is that a lot of pete's songs don't really hold up to the challenge you know new song is just kind of you know sort of half-baked cynicism in my opinion um I do really love, however, uh, not only Who Are You. Who Are You is great. We, we just sort of glossed over it. We, it's kind of like that thing that everyone just says, oh, Who Are You, that's a good song. We should actually stop and appreciate how good a song Who Are You is. It's also the last time Keith Moon sounds anything like Keith Moon. It is an amazing song from soup to nuts, all right? The drums are really great, especially uh, what what Keith is doing with the cymbals and the hi hats. I really like that. Um, but I also love you know that that break in the middle where you know you know, the synths go wah bah 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 bah. Mm-hmm. Roger screams, "Who are you?" And then it goes into that Sufi mystic chant, "Who are you? Are you? Are?" And then, it then uh, suddenly breaks into uh, it, there was had been an acoustic guitar solo before that, but then Rod Argent 
uh, Rod Argent, famously from the Zombies. Um, I guess he, he was probably at that time probably more well known for his independent band that everyone has forgotten called Argent. But I think of Rod Argent as the guy who wrote Time of the Season mm-hmm. and She's Not There, and Tell Her No, and all that great stuff from Odyssey. I didn't, and know, yeah, I didn't know that. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's Rod Argent playing the piano on Who Are You? And he's amazing. All those, those big arpeggios saying. And of course, this is also wonderful because this is the uh, this is the song where, uh, as we joked about in the first half of this show, um, you know, Roger Daltrey got to get away with singing the word f- right on the, in, in the middle of a song twice, and and it would get played on the air. And the ending of that song, that final that final triumphant, who the f are you? I'm just like every time I used to hear it on the radio, I felt like I was getting away with the <laughs> It was that song, and then uh, the only one that I always remember too is uh, a Jet Airliner from Steve Miller. I mean, Steve Miller yep. of all people got to say the F word <laughs> on the radio, except if they played well, the, the radio. Mirror by Pearl Jam. That was the other one I would say. If you played the radio version of uh, of, uh, of uh, Jet Airliner instead of the funky funky shit, it would be Funky Kicks, which I I, I never liked that. That was so lame. Funky Kicks. I mean, what what is that? But you know the thing about "Who Are You," by the way, is a lyrical conceit. It's also smart. Again, this is actually about you know him. You know, as as Ben pointed out, like him getting drunk, falling, you know, out, you know, in a drunken haze after he's his illusions have been shattered. These punks still love the Who, and he thinks the Who are worthless. So he just gets completely blitzed, wakes up on a doorstep. Uh, but that that final verse. I know there's a place where you walk where love falls from the trees. My heart is like a broken cup. I only feel right on my knees. He's talking about God again. I spit out like a sewer hole, and I still receive your kiss. How can I measure up to anything now after such a love as this? Well, who are you? He's asking, who are you, God? course everybody thought because the way rogers sings he's like who the f are you it's more of like you know like a punch in the nose kind of a thing but like again townsend his lyrical ability did not fail him even in this late period of the who i think there are other songs on this record that are good i think guitar and pen is a fantastic song i know people think it's like too much gilbert and sullivan pomp and you know falderall but i i I like it i like the part where you're like you know roger is like you know you you pick up your guitar and you smash it because the running ain't clean but then you stitch it back together and start writing again the problem, I think the only real problem with this album is that Pete is so clearly writing about himself 
that it feels strange when it's put into Roger's mouth. And this is going to be the problem with the Who's songs from this point forward. Really kind of the problem that started with uh, the Who by Numbers, where Roger was like, I'm not going to sing however much I booze. It's clearly about you. But Pete is so so blatantly and nakedly autobiographical that you begin to see that divergence point where like the solo career was inevitable because he's just writing only about his own mind mm-hmm. and the, his emotional trip and his state of you know the, his state of being that it doesn't feel if it's good music very good music but it doesn't feel like classic who music There's no like either you know, giant operatic conceits or like goofy things about Happy Jack and like dogs and magic buses. Uh, it's it's Pete working his own emotional traumas out on the page and in music, and it gets to feel weirder and weirder inside of Roger Daltrey's mouth. Um, but before we move on to the post Keith Moon era, I do want to spend a little time on a film called The Kids Are All Right. Do you guys have any opinions about this movie? The soundtrack to me isn't really even that essential, but the movie, oh my God, I would I would never allow us to do an episode on The Who without talking about this film for at least a little bit. Uh, the movie's amazing. I mean, I, I agree with you that the soundtrack isn't essential. If you, I mean, you don't need to get that. But uh, just as a film, and obviously we started in the last episode of you talking about, you know, happening upon it late at night. It, it sucks you in, and it has this, it has this combination of footage that, uh, you know, gives you the band interacting with people you both recognize and people you don't, and telling their story in between these different performances, uh, and. I, I mean, just as something that gives you a glimpse of uh, the way they really were, it's, it's. I mean, I, I think that it has to be thought of today as, um, you know, a, a preface to the kind of access that we have now, um, uh, that sort of morphed over the course of the following decades, from giving you a true behind the scenes. Of uh, of something uh, that that charts a band's passage through through life to now kind of a pastiche of that approach. You know, uh, compare the kids are all right to uh, 
to uh, uh, Taylor Swift's latest Netflix project. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's it's just, it, 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 it is, these things could not be more unalike. But it's like, they, oh, yes, no, you're going you're, you're gonna to see who these people really are. You're going to see what they're really like. You're going to have this combination of interviews and behind-the-scenes uh, uh, footage. Um, or we're Roger, going to pres- Roger Daltrey had a fantastic quote about this, I think, right around mm-hmm. when the film was released. He's like, like, all of these rock films that have been made before are just, you know, pompous, you know, self-praise. You know, they're all about, like, you know, how big Robert Plant's dick is. I think that's what he said. <laughs> is it, is it, and meanwhile, in the first 30 minutes of this film, we're made to look like complete and total fools. <laughs> this is what we are. And that is exactly what the kids are all right is about. Today. Yes. It, it captures the humor. They're goofballs, but they but they also it, but it's very English. I mean, it's very they. Uh, what I came away from seeing that for the first time was just a new perspective on particularly the dark humor that is underneath them, in a way that that. I mean, we talked about this in in the broad sense before, but compared to the to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, I felt always felt like the Who took themselves the least seriously. They. Yeah were the most willing to mock themselves, to be arch, to to make fun of a situation or to come up with, you know, to build a whole song around dirty jokes. And <laughs> and to me, that's actually, it takes great skill to do that and have it be catchy and good. Um, in the same way that, like, it, one of the hardest things in the world, why do we love stand-up so much? It's because it's one of the hardest things in the world for a person to just get on stage with a microphone and make a thousand people laugh mm-hmm. and 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 that is it, to me when you look at the Hughes music whose music it, it's like it's it's easy to be you know angsty and and dark and and go in this you know sort of particular uh, direction it's harder to make that into something that's amusing and funny where you laugh at yourself uh, you laugh at the the sadness of the human condition you laugh at uh the ridiculousness of what's around you um and that's something that I think you know is an undercurrent. But when you watch Kids Are All Right, you really understand it, and you get who they are and why they're trying to do that. So yeah. this is on my list of films to watch over quarantine. So <laughs> you haven't seen it? I have not seen The Kids Are All Right. I have not seen. Oh my dear lord! Well, well it's free. It's free to stream, so you can. So you can. Uh, I say free to stream. Is it? Is it? Amazon? It's Amazon, I think. So you have to prime. Everybody's whatever. got prime. I just I have my own DVD, which I have treasured ever since the, the remastered and reissued version came out, and I guess it was yes. 2004 or something like that. Restored. This is the thing where we were talking about the other day about like that incredible performance of a quick one while he's away on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. And you just see them just destroying things. Um, you know, like they're playing a fundamentally goofy song and get the sound, the, the monstrous sound and the beautiful harmonies, all that comes out of this. And they're singing a song about a, uh, like a girl, a girl guide who gets seduced by an engine driver and that gets found out when her husband comes home and gets forgiven. It doesn't make any sense. It's goofy sixties <laughs> pop art. And, it, it, it is 
there's such joy. I think it's one of my favorite films in terms of editing, rock editing, in that it feels like it was a monkey that just like threw stuff against the wall. It's not chronological. It doesn't like begin with like the high numbers and end with who are you or anything like that. No, it just like goes back and forth. You hear, here's the who playing Baba O'Reilly in 1978. Here's boom. Here's the who, you know, playing I can't explain on Shindig in 1965. Uh, it, it jumps around and it never lets you forget that this is a band that was incredibly serious but also incredibly silly and that that beating heart of the the weird molding together of goofiness and sincerity that was the classic who the who with keith moon really um is so perfectly represented in, in this film uh i just Scott, I'm I'm scandalized by the fact that you haven't seen it. It's <laughs> it's two hours and twenty minutes. You won't literally be bored for a single second of it. It is that great. Um, I'll, I guess, I'll watch and I'll report back to you. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you, you should just like delete your contributions to the show. <laughs> I'm so upset. I just can't believe you haven't watched it. Quarantine time, indeed. You've got ample time to kill. I know That's you're right. an essential employee of your of of the of the radio station, so you don't quite have the same home time that the rest of us might. But still, for God's sake, you've got to watch the film. I guess the way we end the show or the way we wrap things up is by talking about the post moon career of the who they did two more albums before the uh, who kind of broke up, you know, in the short run, they obviously would do endless reunion tours. In fact, they're still doing endless reunion tours and they will do those endless reunion tours until the day that either Pete Townsend or Roger Daltrey falls dead. Wasn't that the, the name of one of their more recent albums too? endless reunions. No, endless wire. Sorry. Endless wire. Okay, yes. Well, I, I, I wish nothing but good health upon both of them. I think they're both wonderful folks. Please stay alive, Pete and Roger. Um, but the thing that needs to be addressed is what do you think about the two Kenny Jones era albums? Kenny Jones, uh, by the way, a, a drummer for a great band. Two yes, great bands. A great drummer for two great bands. I mean, the small faces no and the faces, man. He was a great drummer. The faces are a fantastic band. Well, the faces are great. You would have thought that he'd have fit right in with The Who. And yet, you have these two albums, Face Dances and It's Hard, and he does not sound like the Kenny Jones of the faces. No. And here's the reason. Let's be honest. It's not Kenny Jones's fault. It's Pete Townsend's fault. Mm. Because Pete Townsend was writing songs that were or in that girl. Pete Townsend solo confessional mode. Mm -hmm, they're yeah. much more arty. They're much more intricate. They're much more delicate. They are not like big... Thunderous rock and who numbers. They're, you know, stuff that would have come off of Empty Glass, which is an album maybe if I get a chance to mention, I will later on. But what do you guys think of Face Dances? Is the inclusion of uh, Did You Steal My Money a meta comment? I always wondered. <laughs> I think Pete said that, like, if I really told you what that song was about, nobody uh, would come off looking good, including myself. So he's never really expanded upon that. I mean, uh, you better you bet it's okay. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, look, where we are in the the frustration about this album is that uh, uh, Pete uh, does uh, Empty Glass uh, less than a year earlier, and and it was much better, in my opinion. Uh, oh, yeah. dances so i mean it's like it's not even close and so it's like clearly the artistic energy is being directed in a different direction um and uh and that and so to me i 
I honestly don't have much to say about face dances. I do have stuff to say about it's hard, but uh, but uh, if uh, Scott wants to weigh in, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think face dances is actually not a bad album. Um, I might say it's better than Who Are You. In fact, um, the, hmm. uh, uh, the 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 two singles. Well, actually, I don't think another tricky day was a single, but You Better You Bet certainly was a single and did very well on the charts. I think it was twelve or fourteen. I think You Better Your Bet is a really great song. It, it's, it, you know, there's so many different sections of that song, right? The, I don't really mind how much you love me or I lay in the bed with you or um, you better love me all the time. All the right. time now. And you po- better shove me like it's alive now. Right. And putting all those all those little portions of song together, I think, works perfectly. It's really well, uh, it's a really well constructed song. Daltrey, by this point, I'm less and less a fan of his his vocals because they're not really interpretive as much as they are just like a blunt instrument. Yeah, um, ranting. There's no a little, finesse. A little bit shouty, right? right? Yeah. But I think it's okay on this song that they kind of they kind of bounce. <laughs> they have a little bounce to them, and I love I love Pete's ringing like simple guitar solo on "You Better You Bet" as well. It's a it's a really good song. And then I think there's just that I think Daltrey does a good job on that vocal. I think yes, on this song. Line. Yes, yes. Like you know. I know I wear I know I wear very crazy clothes and I look pretty crappy sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> you know but my body feels so good and I still feel the rays of lines. and it's a little creepy but I do love his delivery on you welcome me with open arms and, and open, open legs, legs. <laughs> <laughs> I want those know a song is classic that like we can just rattle off back and forth the lines to one another yeah um that is a great song i mean i actually agree with you but i'm gonna let you finish your thoughts yeah i i, mean, I think the i think the front part of the album is is pretty decent don't let go the code is is okay uh, the quiet one um reminds me very much of a rush song that i can't pinpoint in my mind uh but very bass heavy with end whistle and then um uh, before i get to another tricky day just one note you don't produce this album i i didn't Realize uh, until... Bill Bill Ichart, uh, <laughs> Bill, Bill No Vowels in my name, Bill Simsick, who produced all the uh, some of the Eagle stuff and yeah, Joe Walsh. Uh, how I thought it was Sim Chick. I don't know this these these, these goofy Polacks <laughs> like me. You know, like we just don't like our vowels. Sometimes like it depends it. on the Polish person you know how they actually pronounce. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Cyk could mean one thing to some person and something else to someone else entirely. Yeah, but, I mean, this is what happens when you get the Eagles producer in. Yeah, for your I album. mean, the, the production here is like crystal clean. It is so sharp and clean. I think to its detriment at times. So that's what that's what Bill Simsek's going to do to your stuff. 
Uh, Another Tricky Day, which is the last song of the album, is also very, very good. Uh, uh, all those huge ringing chords from Townsend. And Whistle Again is going up and down the bass frets. And uh, I love that Daltrey Townsend, the double-up vocal lead. Just got to uh, get used to it. Another Tricky Day, too. Exactly. It's And it there there are little portions that sort of pop out. You know, uh, there'll be an ant whistle bass line. There'll be uh, you know, a drum fill pops out. A little piano tinkle pops out. So there's little touches on Another Tricky Day that I like quite a bit. So... For, you know, starting back, beginning and end, uh, Face Dance's best work. But I think the middle is 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 quite decent. I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. I think it's you know a pretty good album. I think this is actually a really solid album. I don't know if it's better than Who Are You. I think it's certainly it's equal. And yes, the the problem here is is that it's a Pete Townsend solo album sung by and played by the Who. Uh, yeah. Well, minus Keith Moon, right? But. That's not a bad thing because I think Pete Townsend was a pretty great solo artist, at least during this era. And so, yeah, as you know, as Scott already talked about, you better you bet. I don't need to. I don't need to recover his ground. I think the same thing about another tricky day. I, that's just such a great little song. There's that that little um, bit like you know, you just gotta get used to. It. You gotta get used to waiting. You know how the ice is. It's thin where you're skating. Mm-hmm. And then Pete's like, "This is no social crisis. This is you having fun." Oh, it's like it's actually really, it's one of those things that when you put it on it kind of reminds you like you know stop being such a mopey bastard <laughs> you know like, you know, like there's, there are worse there are worse things happening in the world than whatever you're con- you're currently freaking out about you're gonna get over it it's a great song in that respect but there are other things on here that are good I think uh, I didn't like uh, John Entwistle's songs on Who Are You I really like his two songs on Face Dances I really like the quiet one and I really really like You uh, which is kind of like you know, almost like he was he wrote it on purpose to be like, we're going to play this one live. Here's a big, big, gigantic who rocker. We're playing it live, but you is great. And that's probably one of the very few moments on the album where you get to actually hear Kenny Jones as, as, as a really good rocker, as a really good drummer. Otherwise, like you're playing precision lines on things like, you know, another tricky day, or on uh, you better you bet. You're, you're like, what happened to this guy? How did they neuter him? I guess I'll my, say one last. You're you gonna go say ahead. Ben? No, no, no. You go first. Oh, well, I was just gonna say. I think my my big issue with both of these <laughs> albums, both of the both face dances and it's hard, as which we'll get to, is there are songs that Pete puts in his solo uh, albums that could have worked to make these albums stronger okay um, you know, you, and and so if 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 we're gonna be three members of the who doing uh doing pete townsend songs that are basically pete townsend solo songs then at least include uh 
you know, let my love open the door and empty glass and rough boys on face dances and have slit skirts and, and uh, somebody saved me, which I think they did try for, for face dances, uh, you know, like on it's hard uh, or what, what have you. It just, I think that he was saving his better material for himself and it would have, I mean, they, there needed to be a decision at this point and they weren't ready to make it yet. Okay, so this actually, I'm glad that Ben brought this up. This brings us to the elephant in the room, which is <laughs> Pete Townsend's burgeoning solo career at this point. He'd refused, he'd released like a couple of solo albums earlier during the 70s, but it wasn't like Pete Townsend's doing a solo breakout. It was more like, you know, Pete Townsend's got time to kill, you know, and so like, you here's who came first. It's, you know, a bunch of demos that I did, then, you know, weird, like, you know, Indian devotionals, like Par of. You know, nobody needs to hear Pike Paravartigar or whatever, you know, like that weird ragga rock thing that he does on that Who Came First album is. Um, rough mix with Ronnie Lane. Nobody you know, that's a good album actually, a very good album. But it didn't feel like he was stealing stuff from the Who because the Who was never gonna play Street in the City. But then you get to Empty Glass in nineteen eighty, and that's where things change. Empty Glass, as Ben mentioned, and I agree, is better. I like Who Are You, and I like Face Dances. I think they're both actually fairly strong albums. Empty Glass is better than both of them. And I, I just pray and I beg to you, people who are listening to this Who podcast, if you have not heard Empty Glass, uh, that's insane. Because it's better than any album that The Who ever released, I think probably since Quadrophenia. Uh, and yet, I'm going to disagree a little bit with Ben when I think... like. Would these songs have sounded right in Roger's mouth? Okay, Rough Boys, yeah, yeah. Roger could have sung that one. Uh, but he gave Empty Glass to them, uh, and they did the version of it, and the Who just mocked it. They called it Choir Boy, you yeah. know, because he was singing like so high up in his range, Pete was. Um, you can hear that demo version on, on Who Are You? Um, but there are songs on that album that are just like just devastatingly powerful to me. There's a song there called I Am an Animal, where, you know, you know, Townsend is just nakedly confessional about like all of his failings. Like, you know, I know I'm an animal. My teeth are strong, but my mouth is full. Teeth are sharp. But my mouth is full. Um, it's so beautiful, but it's piano based. It's not guitar based. It, it, and say, let, let my love open the door. That there's no there's guitars in there theoretically, but it's a synthesizer song. Same with a little is enough. Everyone loves a little is enough. Great song. But it's a synthesizer-based song. So I just don't know if these songs really would have worked uh, in the context of The Who. Sure, 
And I think that Townsend himself was like really disillusioned by the making of face dances because he said, like, I presented these songs, you know, he, he played off his demo tapes to the band, you know, he's like, oh, here's what I've come up with. What do you think of these? And he was, you know, greeted with like notable uh, lack of enthusiasm. Like he was just like, people were like, uh, yeah, well, I like that one bit in that one song. <laughs> Um, and you know they ended up going along with it and recording the album the album actually turned out fairly well in my opinion um, but yeah they didn't really respond well to, to, to Pete's songs Pete was just like ah screw it you know I'm, I'm not going to do this and so you know what that ends up giving us uh, the second time around is It's Hard uh, an album that was rapturously reviewed at the time did you, see, thought, did you see the Rolling Stone review for It's Hard it, five out of no, five no, stars. I, I can't remember it. What was it? It was five out of five stars, the highest rating they could oh give an album. God. And then they said it was the most vital and coherent Who album since Who's Next. That is the Rolling Stone review of It's Hard. <laughs> Better than Quadrophenia. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, and now, of course, it's like universally reviled. Uh, I went <laughs> back. I, I hadn't listened to this album in a decade. You know, I've had it in my collection for that long. And... I hadn't gone back to listen to it, and so now I did for the show, only because the show compelled me to do so. And, hey, you know what? It's not terrible. I guess that's my praise. Uh, it's not terrible, but I wouldn't call it good. I don't know if anybody wants to disagree with me. Uh, I mean, it's... <laughs> Uh, not terrible. <laughs> yes, there, there are two. There are two truly great songs on it. There are two songs that, like, I would put on my greatest hits. Who compilation? I think Athena is a great song. Kind of silly. She's a girl. She's a She's bomb. A <laughs> She's a girl. But yeah, I like it. You know, my heart felt like a shattered glass in an acid bath. Was that a suicidal psychopath? I like Daltrey's vocal on that. Athena, you pick me up. By my I felt like waking up in heaven on an empty meter And now you're stuck with a castrated leader I hate the crew I didn't mean that She's a I just said it She's a the other one the one that actually is famous from this album that gets played a ton on the radio still even to this day is eminence front but again that feels very much like a pete townsend solo song it doesn't feel like it's a who song because you know it's, it's you know synthesizers it's yeah. very kind of regimented you know, rigid click track i never know um, i never know what i i like eminence front but i always am somewhat conflicted because when you get down to it, there's not much to it, right? I mean, it's you mean, it's, it's a that put on, circular, saying, right? Yeah, it's a put on exactly. But it's it's that circular uh, guitar line and that sequence, which is repeated for essentially five and a half minutes. Uh, I would have thought as song. a DJ that you loved Eminence Front because he gave you that good, like you know, solid minute and a half opening. To oh, talk. to talk it up. It's actually that's you know what, little inside radio. That's too long. 
You don't want to be talking oh. over a song for too long. Yes. So when you get a minute yeah. and a half of Eminence Front as, as Pete mm-hmm. soloing, it's it's just too long. You want you want enough time for maybe the forecast, the current temp, and going to be out at the Best Buy on Friday. Um, <laughs> and after that, you know, it's it's too much to fill. I I, I love Eminence Front. I think it's a great song. Uh, I think Athena is a good song. I th- it, though I do think it's a kind of an indication of why. The Who, again, as opposed to uh, uh, the Beatles and the Stones, uh, don't write a lot of songs about women, <laughs> if, you, if you haven't noticed. Uh, uh, I like uh, Dangerous, um, and I like Cry If You Want. Uh, I think, I mean, per, per, I, I, know this, I know that this is, is uh, you know, a sort of a, a weird album in a lot of different ways, but to me, the, uh, you know, this is kind of a, it's a last hurrah. I mean, this is the this is the end point, really. And so, uh, as that goes, I don't think it's a bad one, considering that Eminence Front is just a a, a lot of uh, it's it's a fun song. It's something that kind of uh, has this uh, '80s funk vibe to it. I think of it as as being uh, you know something that uh, even though it does even though there's not a lot there, even though it is that kind of a put on, um, it just has that very recogn- uh, very recognizable. Um, uh, beat to it that's that you know to me is just uh, evokes a particular time. I can see I can see people <laughs> you, you wandering can see around. The speedboats flying. Yes, you know? I mean exactly. honestly. So uh, whips the shares crash. here it's just yeah um so i have had the good fortune in my life to meet uh a, an absurd number of celebrities randomly in various locations um including both michael mann and don johnson and, <laughs> and uh I, in fact i met michael mann and robert de niro on the same day in different locations in new york it was bizarre um and and michael mann was very surprised to be recognized on his phone on the <laughs> but um but don johnson I was, I was, uh, I, I, he was sitting across from me on a plane flying to California the first time that I did Bill Maher and, um, and his wife started talking to me. I obviously noticed him, but I wasn't going to say anything. And then his wife started talking to me across the way. Uh, and, uh, and she asked me, Oh, what, what are you doing? And I said, I told her what I was doing. She said, Oh, who's the, we always watch who's the political guest. I said, Oh, it's Gavin Newsom who at the time was not yet, um, he was uh, governor the mayor of San Francisco. He was the mayor. No, no, he was uh, he was lieutenant governor, I think. Then, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Mid- so um, and uh, and she said, "Oh, that's oh, that's funny. I used to date Gavin. He introduced me to Don." <laughs> and so the takeaway that I had from that is never introduce your girlfriend to Don Johnson. <laughs> but I did get the opportunity to say to Don Johnson, uh, "You uh, you were in the 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 greatest scene in TV history, I think." 
uh, and it's just an honor to, to meet you. Meaning, of course, the coming in the air tonight scene uh, in, yeah, right. uh, in, the, in the original premiere of, of, of Miami Vice. But to me, like, I, I hear Eminence Front and I see guys with their, like, their sleeves rolled up and and like in yellow suits unironically, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, the and, people the guys who can get away wearing pink shirts and white yes. suit jackets. Yeah, right. Yeah and, it's, yeah. yeah. and they have sunglasses on, they have stubble, the hair is slicked back, and it's Miami and everyone's doing a lot of coke. <laughs> yes, exactly. So so it has a little bit of that eighties charm for me. Um but yes, I mean this is this is, you know, we are we are near the end here, you know, and uh and it, it definitely feels like that. So does anybody have any thoughts? And I have to confess, like, you know, I'm, as you can tell, if you've been listening to two shows worth of this, one of the world's biggest Who fans, I really have not paid much attention to the Who's career after It's Hard. Obviously, this is the last album that they would release in their original working order. They did a live tour. They did a live album that you never, please never go hear the live album that came out of the 1982 tour. Um, uh, but then they had their first reunion in 1989, and dear good Lord God, it would not be the last. <laughs> um, you know, John Entwistle dies in 2002. Then they put out a new album, but it, it's called The Who. But is it really The Who? I mean, this kind of kind of brings up the point that I was making earlier, that you know, it's Pete Townsend writing Pete Townsend songs, but you know, Roger Daltrey is there to sing some of them with him. Uh, John Entwistle isn't even playing anymore and then they have this most recent album who which i'm going to be honest with you and this embarrasses me to say as a mega fan i have not listened to the most recent album i don't know what you guys think of endless wire or who you know it finally took them like you know like 60 years to release an album that was self-titled but there we have it (laughs) so i uh uh so um uh, endless wire i have i have heard i don't really have strong thoughts about it on in any real way i was debating listening to uh the latest album uh which was uh, uh just released uh, in december um and and uh, before we did this podcast and then i decided not to on purpose because, on purpose because i felt like if i listened to it and i didn't like it that I would be in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah, you, you would sour things. <laughs> yes, and, and, and I want to be in a good mood. So actually, I have been waiting to do this second episode of the podcast to go back and to listen to it. Aren't we all going to feel really stupid if it turns out to be awesome? <laughs> exactly. Like, what if it's a great record? Aren't we going to yeah. feel like morons? Well, yeah, even, but, you know, uh, even if it's a great record... Uh, to Jeff's point, is it a, is it a really a Who record? Is it just Roger Daltrey singing a Pete Townsend song? I, I don't know how you can listen to the Who for whatever it was, uh, 15, more than that, 18 years, and hear the musicianship of Keith Moon and hear the virtuoso quality of John Entwistle's bass and think that two albums, these two albums, where they are not clearly a part of them, would be entered into like the Who canon i i don't know how you can think you can replace probably the 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 thing about the who which is crazy we've talked about this so many times during the course of recording all three of those guys were the uh, the absolute best at what they did i mean keith moon played drums like no one played drums john and whistle played bass like no one played bass townsend uh, wrote and played guitar like no one else and to take two-thirds of that away and say oh yeah it's endless wire it's the new who album i just I, i've heard it on the wire maybe once and the new one not at all and i i just don't feel well, that i'm missing out on too much 
So let me just say this. This is the one thing that I do know, just because it came across uh, the wire before uh, we uh, began uh, this this, uh, conversation last week, which is that uh, they've actually canceled their entire UK and Ireland tour. Um, Oh, that's uh, that's understandable. Which is totally understandable, but I do feel sorry for them. I did actually hear generally good things from a couple of folks who got to see them last fall in uh, New York, uh, who I knew they played MSG. Um, and, uh, and I heard you know, just some general like positive, Oh, they're pretty, you know, pretty good kind of thing, uh, from, from friends who went, um, and you know, I, I, I like to hear that. Uh, but you know, I still haven't listened to the, I, the new album. And I, like I said, I, I, w- <laughs> I plan to do so if not tonight, then tomorrow I will listen to it. Um, though, uh, you know, I, look, we, we have to evaluate these bands according to, you know, their heights mm-hmm. and, and not right. according to, you know their, their 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 reunion kind of you know it is pretty rare you know for for these uh, uh, for these aging British rockers uh, and people in that category to just you know come out at the at near the end of their careers with a Johnny Cash like run of of either you know cover exactly. performances or you know it's just it just doesn't typically happen yeah. the American recordings they, uh, they that yeah. doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, uh, and so it, so that to me means that we have to evaluate them, you know, be, based on their best moments. And in and in this conversation, uh, we've been able to touch on, you know, some of what I think are not just the most, you know, uh, broadly known or or you know greatest uh, hits type, you know, stuff that people would hear on classic rock radio, but also iconic moments in the history of rock, and mm-hmm. it puts in perspective just how influential they are and and you know when we first started this conversation i was talking about how isn't it you know they are as as jeff said you know the weaker sister of the the you know three biggest british invasion bands but to me it really is it's just it's it's odd that uh that we would have this this iconic band and still be able to kind of say they're underappreciated for what they are they're more they're more youngsters who know about fleetwood mac from Guardians of the Galaxy two, you know, then they then they know about the Who from uh, you know it's like can't, like somebody put the Who in a Marvel movie, <laughs> like, get, get on that Favreau. So anyway, um, that's yeah. The, yeah. But just surveying this, it's it's just an amazing thing, and you can just you can there's so much material there, and so many um, uh, so many demos, so many bootlegs that uh, that Jeff has acquired. Uh, that that speak to all these different elements of a band that truly uh, uh, achieved some monumental things in rock and roll. And the thing of it, there's also there's it, there's laughs, there are, mm-hmm. there's joy, like absolute legitimate joy. There's profound, like you know, emotional, you know, you know angst. There's sorrow. They they go everywhere. They they plumb the depths of despair and sadness. They go to like the the happiest and silliest like heights of you know zaniness and also triumph. They cover the entire emotional spectrum, and it really always you know isn't you know it's it's a function of the band, the band dynamic, the the sound and the power of the band. But I guess you know on a lyrical level, you really just just uh, you do have to just tip your cap eternally to pete townsend pete townsend is just one of the greatest songwriters uh that 
in the rock field at least that has ever lived and uh you know i'm just I, you know what i don't want them to, i don't want the who to tour because i don't want pete to get COVID. you know like <laughs> yeah i, I want no, him I to stick around as long as he possibly can <laughs> stay with us pete you know and i guess there we come to the part of the episode our look at the who part two in which uh you're your your hosts give you the two albums that you need to own and the five songs from this era that we cover on this episode that you need to hear. Um, last episode, if I remember correctly, we, we we all three had the same two albums. I am fearful that could happen again here. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let, let's find out. Our guest, Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, will take, uh, take the reins first. Ben, your two albums, your five songs. So, uh, two, uh, the two albums are... Uh, I think, as everybody can uh, predict, are, are who's next in Quadrophenia. Um, you you need to own these. Uh, these are these are not optional. <laughs> like even if you're not a fan of the Who, if you care about rock music, you know you you should own them. You should listen to them. You should uh, know them. Uh, and in terms of the five songs, I feel like well, this is going to be where we're going to be scattered and different. Um, I really like Eminence Front, so I would include that. I like Bargain. Uh, I like Naked Eye a lot. Uh, I uh, we mentioned it, you know, uh, uh, briefly, and I think that that's one. Uh, Bob O'Reilly is classic, and then of course uh, my favorite rock song, "Won't Get Fooled Again." Uh, these are just iconic, and uh, and I hope that I hope that people appreciate them. And uh, you know, a, a little uh, uh, also ran for however much I booze, which I think is just a, a good one to to fall back on now and then. Uh, my two albums are who's next and quadrophenia uh the five songs uh two two from who's next uh bargain which ben mentioned and won't get fooled again which ben mentioned but they're both essential um one from quadrophenia and i don't know if if, uh jeff's not going to have any from quadrophenia i think i'm one from quadrophenia is is an absolute must listen uh, and then I'm going to give you two from By Numbers. Uh, I do think it's underrated. Slip Kid and, uh, and Imagine a Man are the two I will tell you from By Numbers. Jeff, over to you. I didn't even plan this, but I'm so thrilled that I can break the chain because yeah. I do not agree with you. My two essential albums from this era of The Who are Quadrophenia, obviously. It would be really it would be really strange if an album that I had already described <laughs> as the greatest album ever released was not one of the essential ones. By the way, uh, the, the greatest album ever released is Bad Out of Hell. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. That, that, that's always been your private anthem, right, Ben? Right, yeah. I cannot right, wait yeah, to have yeah, Ben yeah. back for the Meatloaf episode and talk about Dead yeah. Ringer. Music, music by Jim Steinman. Yes, <laughs> exactly. No, quadrophenia. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Go, go ahead. No, no. I, I actually, no, no. This is going to be excerpted and chopped out. You, you, you're, you're completely 100% serious, man. Anyways, Quadrophenia is the first album. And the second album I'm going to mention is The Who by Numbers. And I think the reason I mention that is because I think it's so criminally underrated that people sort of tend to dismiss it. I don't need to recommend Who's Next to you. As I said, turn on the radio. You'll hear it. You'll hear all of it. You know, you go, go watch TV. Go watch CSI. You'll hear it all. You don't. I don't need to tell you to get that. Get the Who by Numbers. Those are your two essential Who albums from this era. The five songs, boy, that gets really crazy and really tough. And I and I already told Scott before the show began that I was not going to recommend any song from Quadrophenia because 
this is an album that you have to hear as a whole. So when I don't mention like my favorites from that record, like I've had enough or five Fifteen, or the rock, uh, it's not because I don't think they're among the greatest who songs ever made. It's just because don't just listen to one track, listen to the whole experience. So I guess I'll start with Bob O'Reilly. Come on. Teenage Wasteland, the introduction of the synthesizers, that swirling opening where you lose yourself, and something that we did not mention on the show uh, is the wonderful fiddle that ends it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fiddle with you know you know Moon just drumming, and like it's, it's a train running down the tracks, and it just keeps accelerating, going downhill. Um, where did the explosive creativity come from with Pete Townsend to come up with this idea and this song? That's the signaling of their uh, your evolution into adulthood. Uh, the second one I'll mention is Won't Get Fooled Again. We've all mentioned it. Obviously, it's one of the greatest songs ever written, one of the greatest political songs of all time, one of the greatest rock anthems of all time. And anybody who tells you that should be any less long than eight minutes and 30 seconds is full of crap because it deserves every moment of its running time. Uh, Third song I'll mention is Imagine a Man. Scott mentioned that. I was surprised. I completely agree with him. I think it's a beautiful song, beautiful Roger. Uh, Roger didn't write this. Of course, he sings it, uh, but it's notable that he revived it like when he did solo tours he would bring this one out to play uh that's very telling to me because i think he understood just how wonderful and plaintive uh, a moment and an emotion that it captures uh my fourth is going to be who are you the last hurrah for keith moon and the keith moon era who uh there's there's again there's nothing wrong with with who are you there's nothing there's nothing to object to and there's so much to just be impressed with from the backing vocals to the weird synth bleeps to the great the great kind of like scratchy electric guitar that pete townsend plays i love that song and then my final one is i'm gonna go throw out a random you know one here and say it's another tricky day off of face dances uh which scott spent a lot of time talking about i didn't really talk about but it's always meant a lot to me it's always been one of those songs that i i listen to when i kind of need to lift my own my own self out of the personal <laughs> doldrums and, and and it works you know this is no social crisis jeff this is just another tricky day for you We are a look at the who in two parts. Uh, 
fantastic guest. We thank uh, Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist at thefederalist.com, also writer of The Transom, the daily subscription newsletter. Follow on Twitter at B Dominich. Ben, thanks so much for joining us and adding so much to our two episodes on The Who. It's been a huge pleasure to me to do this. And, you know, this is uh, one of the things that I have really been looking forward to. And the only thing I was concerned about is that I wouldn't have enough time to sit down at a, one place and, and give you the kind of devotion in terms of... <laughs> well, you know what? There's, 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 nothing, there's nothing like a world-destroying plague to uh, give you, give yeah, you so the sa- time you need. So same time next week? Yeah, we can, yeah. Uh, exactly. we can move on to Fountains of Wayne. It's right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Uh, again, at Ben Dominich, or at B. Dominich on uh, Twitter for Ben. Jeff, we finally got to the who. I know it's been on the, uh, the checklist. We've completed the triumvirate. We've done it. We, we've done the Beatles. We've done the Stones. We've done the who. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually thrilled that we finally finished it all off. I can, uh, I can go get the COVID now. <laughs> uh, find Ben on, find Ben, find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm at Scott Bertram on Twitter. We invite you to subscribe to our feed. Again, get those new episodes delivered right to you. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats, Political Beats on Facebook. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.